This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmisciano. Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmisciano. When the founders of Ugly Chews reached out to sponsor the program and I looked at their website and saw the Chews, I have to tell you, I thought Ugly Chews were appropriately named. They're very ugly and your dog chews on them. Nailed it. Then the samples arrived and I realized they are not named correctly. They are far, far uglier than the word ugly lets on. But you know who didn't find them gross? My athletic body with a dumb face that won't let him breathe, Boston Terrier Rufus. These uglier than ugly Chews are healthy. There are no artificial ingredients. There are no chemicals. It's just disgusting, horrific nature wrapped up in an ugly sun-dried chew. And in addition to being good for your dog's digestion, these things don't fall apart and get soggy like rawhide. I hate to say it because they're so damn ugly, but they're the best thing to happen to dogs since man let wolves get close to the fire and domesticated them. And if you're not happy with them, Ugly Chews gives you your money back. So if you want to make your dog happy and healthy, go to UglyChews.com. That's right, UglyChews.com. She impaled them, and yeah, I don't think I need to be more specific than that. Well, on that note, I, uh, I <laughs> this is Nick Palmachado, and we are on the neutral position, and I am absolutely honored uh, to have John Reese Davies, a legend of. In his own theater. mind. <laughs> a legend in theater, a legend, uh, you know, on the screen. And what I'm learning already is a, a legend of a historian as well. Uh, very rarely do I have somebody that is dropping so many knowledge bombs in such a short period of time. And also, uh, which is actually a strike against his character, he's very good friends with Hollywood Herd in the background. Um Truly honored to have you on today. Well, I'm honored to, to be on a show with a man with such a distinguished record yourself. Uh, tell me now about what you actually did in when Afghanistan collapsed. Sure. Well, I think we can we can save that because I think everybody <laughs> would much rather hear about about you. So to start, I have a list of, so I just want everyone to know, usually I just do my own thing with my own preparation, but Hollywood in the background has given me a sheet of things I have to ask. So because he is a large semi-muscular man, I'm going to listen to him uh, and also do my own thing. But um, you were born during an air raid. <laughs> One of um, Mr. Goering's attempts to uh, sort of changed the English city side and countryside. My parents were pretty poor. My mother was the daughter of a coal miner in Wales who had died in a coal pit the year before I was born. My father was one of several children of uh, a, a master builder, farmer, carter. He, he grew up on a farm with 97 horses. Mm. Um, and his father, and I only learned this many years after my father had died, went bankrupt in 1927, 26 rather, because, uh, because the, the, there was a general strike that went on for nine months. And the houses that he'd been building for 120 pounds each, he could only sell for 90 pounds. Wow. And, but in those days, bankruptcy was a disgrace. Oh, yeah. And my father never mentioned it to me, never mentioned it. Um, so yes, um, they were living in this little house, 
71 Meadow Road, Salisbury. And, and the, the, the raid started, and my mother apparently said, Good God, Reese, they're going to bomb the gasworks, and promptly went into labor. So I was <laughs> born in Salisbury Infirmary. But I have to emphasize, I was conceived in Wales, and thus give me uh, at least some sort of qualification to play rugby for Wales, <laughs> which I never could have done. <laughs> what is it that... Um drew you to the arts? I couldn't compete with my father. He played soccer for Ammon United. He played rugby for Hrenetli. He was a Welsh rugby trialist. Wow. I, I asked him when I was a little boy why he didn't play rugby for Wales, and he had a trial. And he said, well, I wasn't hard enough. That would be 1934, uh, a year that I later discovered that he was Welsh amateur heavyweight boxing champion. He was playing hockey for Tanganyika Police at the age of 56. He was quite a sprinter. He, he, could, he was running even time, which in those days was, you know, 100 yards and 10 seconds, was really pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty uh, fast. Um, so I couldn't compete with him in that way. And I wasn't a mathematician. He was quite good at math, though he'd left school when he was 14. Uh, his father didn't believe that it, it, too much in education. That was common. Yeah. Um, but he, he loved Milton. He'd been taught Milton hmm. by a very good schoolmaster in Wales. And I naturally fell in love with Shakespeare. And, and we would match each other, quotation for quotation. And I think my love of poetry and my love of the rhythm of language really came from my Welsh heritage. Both of them were Welsh-speaking, but they didn't, after the age of three, when I was being mocked for my Welsh accent, they didn't, they didn't speak to me in Welsh anymore. So I, am, I'm, I cannot speak Welsh, which is sort of like a man with one leg, really. It's a, it makes difficulty in walking. However, uh, yes, well, I... I my father went out to Africa after the war. He'd been an engineer in the wartime, and he, I think he felt guilty because he hadn't been allowed to go and do his share of the heavy lifting in war. Mm. Though he did his, did his share in... Of course. In, 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 you know, as an engineer. We went out to Africa, and... Uh, Whereabouts in Africa? Tanzania, Tanganyika. I had the very interesting mix of backgrounds. You know, out in Africa... You know, a colonial bungalow with five acres and four servants. Back in Wales, where I was sent with my grandmother and Auntie Maggie, little miners' cottages, two up, two down, a mm -hmm. tin bath in front of the fire mm -hmm. uh, on once a week, you know, on Friday. And then the privations of a minor English public school. It was a schizophrenic childhood, which is absolutely wonderful for making actors um, <laughs> because you have to adapt. Children adapt to different environments. And uh, the very first play I saw was Oedipus Rex. Hmm. Imagine, 11 years old and you see Oedipus Rex. It hit me like a hammer. Since I had, I've got one of those minds that can pick things up and they float around and come up to surface. I knew that Aristotle had written something about tragedy, so I, I left the theater, I went straight to the senior uh, uh, library. You weren't allowed in the senior library when you were a first former, you know, fourth formers and above. And uh, 
but I, part of my defiance, as always. <laughs> uh, I went there, found Aristotle on tragedy, mm. and I read and I memorized. Tragedy, then, is the imitation of an action, complete and of some importance, acted, not narrated, in language enhanced by distinct and varying means, and through pity and fear, effecting its purgation of these emotions. Th that has haunted me all my life as I try to work out exactly what effecting its purgation of these emotions means. But I knew it when I saw the play. Mm. That's, uh, that's, that's normal for a kid. I think that's, a, you know, a kid will, kid will watch a play and then go and memorize, you know, brilliant uh, prose from, you know. That's, I, think, I think that's how we all grew up. Is that, is that how you grew yeah, up as well? That sounds about yeah. right. Well, you see, I was just, I, I, <laughs> look, I, I, I grew up in, in, in pretty remote areas. There weren't many people to play with. Um, and, uh, and really, I didn't, I didn't learn to play properly, mm. which, of course, is not a very good thing when you go to a, a boarding school because boarding school is very much about learning team play and all that. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't really know how to relate. Ironically enough... I, I, about 21 years ago, I, I started going to fan conventions. I had to go to the first one to promote the thing I was on, and I was bitching and moaning and grumbling, and what do I have to now, do? Now, to be clear, thing? the thing you were on was probably Lord of the Rings? No, it was before that. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I can't even remember what the show was now, but, um, and uh, I was thinking, oh, why do I want to do this? I mean, all these people dressed up as Captain Kirk, and, uh, you know, <laughs> come on, for God's sake, can't they get a life? Um, and I went, and it slowly occurred to me, actually, that many of them do have a life. Mm. And many of those lives are so rich. Yep. I attribute going to fan conventions and meeting the fans to a real sea change in my own, in my own mind. I realized that, really, when I was younger, I didn't much like people. I was of a, an absolutely competitive nature. Mm. And the older I have become, and, and through meeting the fans, the more I realize increasingly that I like people. They are glorious. Sometimes they're sad, sometimes they're pathetic. Mostly, though, they are interesting. And sometimes you come across moments of heroism in ordinary life that you think, God, this person has... This person bears more than I could endure with such dignity and grace and positiveness. Mm. It, it really instructs you on your own inadequacies sometimes. I love people. I love it. That's why I go to fan conventions, really. So, you know, you find Aristotle and you start really mulling over in your head what that means. How does that pull you? Well, it, it made me turn from being wanting to be a, a nuclear scientist or batting for England in cricket, yeah. um, which my short-sightedness probably would have inhibited somewhat. I mean, I think the highest score I ever got was five in a cricket in, in, in a house match. Playing cricket for England was, was never going to be on. Um, I can, can I share my cricket career before? I just, it's, have you very, played, it's very short. It's have very you short. played cricket? When I, when I started dating my wife, who, as I told you, is, is from Leicestershire, and her, her father was a coal miner, so I, I uh, immediately kind of uh, clung to that. 
they brought me to Cornwall, right? Her family was like, take, let's take Nick, let's meet this American that you're, you're dating. We're, we'll go to Cornwall and uh, we'll, have, we'll, we'll play cricket on the beach, right? Mm. I've never played cricket. And apparently uh, my wife's mom is, is very good at it. And so she's gonna pitch and they hand me this cricket bat and I swing it like an American. And on my very first swing, I snapped the bat in half and the, uh, the top half of the bat goes flying towards my future mother-in-law, who thankfully, uh, you know, is a very good athlete and was able to kind of like, you know, duck past it. Uh, that was my cricket career. After that, my wife thought it was best if I never touched the bat again, so. You mentioned Cornwall, that's where I was at school. Really? Down in Truro, yes. It's beautiful. Yes. Absolutely yes. beautiful. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. So, no, no, no. So we're back. To, we are back to your your approach of. Oh, yeah. No, what it meant was that I was going to. My new destiny was to was to become the new Sophocles. To be okay. To be the greatest dramatic writer that you know. That you what age did you make this determination? Well, eleven, eleven and a half. Okay. Again, um, a totally normal. Totally normal. Approach. I'm learning a lot in a very short amount of time. <laughs> I'm, yes, I'm sorry. It's it, it, very tedious. I, 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 <laughs> not, I, I, so. not at all. But not the um, <laughs> he's he's humoring me here. No, what I'm just I'm I'm just wondering how um, you're such good friends with the simpleton over here at the end of the table. <laughs> <laughs> so you are on your way to become Sophocles. No, well, I was on my way, but. I was, a del I, I was a delinquent. Uh, I was a rebel. I, I really, I mean, had it not gone to that school and been forced, if it had not been for the school, I'm sure I would have been up before the magistrate. They had a way of dealing with colonial boys who came from rather strange circumstances. Mm. And they'd try and find something that we're good at. And they put me in a play, and I was quite good. And then they put me in another play. What, and was, I, what was your first play? Oh, it was a little dormitory play, and I don't—I can't remember now. Uh, and then they put me literally. It, it was a jump into a school play, and I played—I played a young—I played an American, an American attorney, <laughs> this high court of justice. You know, uh, I can't remember what it was. And then Shakespeare. Uh, so by the time I had left school, I had—I had done uh, Troilus and Cressida. I played Ulysses in Troilus and Cressida. Mm -hmm. I played Othello. I played, uh, of course, you wouldn't be allowed to play Othello these days. Um, I played Ben Jonson's Volpone. But it was finding Shakespeare that gave me the language to express my adolescent fury. Mm. You know. You common cry of curs, I banish you. It's Coriolanus, by the way. Uh, actually, that's Timon. Oh, no, that's Coriolanus. You're quite right. Very oh, good. Very good. <laughs> Big brain on top. Oh. We are not worthy. <laughs> we are not worthy. Well, not that's why good. you get to sit in that seat. <laughs> Very good, Coriolanus. Um, Shakespeare is difficult. You find it easy. I could, no. I could tell. No, I, no, no. Shakespeare, Shakespeare, of course Shakespeare is difficult because... because the richness and complexity of his language and his thinking is extraordinary. And extraordinary minds are often hard to 
hard to follow. And yet there's, there's, there's such a lyrical beauty in it that you come back. Henry IV, uh, there's, there's, another, there's another rebellion going on. Uh, and and uh, you know, the king is, in, is really depressed. And, uh, and one of his earls says, rumor doth double like the voice and echo the number of the feared. And then the king says, O Westmoreland, thou art a summer bird that ever in the haunch of winter sings the lifting up of day. What a, what a glorious thing, it, that wonderful image of the little summer bird on the branch in winter yet still singing. It, you know, there's such a magic in almost every one of those lines. One of the things I, I have to do before I die is finish the play that I'm writing about Shakespeare, which I might just take as a touring piece. Hmm. Uh, you know, all, all actors have to die in the saddle. <laughs> um, none of this darn retiring nonsense. <laughs> old actors never die, they just go on and on and on and on. And <laughs> I was, uh, I, for undergrad, I went to West Point, the United States Military Academy. And people have an impression of what that is. But they actually provide you a, a, a classical education. And we had to memorize a lot of Shakespeare. We had to perform a lot of Shakespeare. And we were graded on not only the ability to memorize. So it was a scale of five if you were able to deliver the lines without failure it was a three but then four and five were based on performance and how did you do i did well i did well i put a lot of work into come on don't be don't I'm be modest not, i'm not come I, on there is Skip. absolutely zero chance that after the performances you've already provided that i am going to attempt any shakespeare <laughs> i am a coward i am a coward but if you were sitting here you would do the same thing but uh you know, it, it's funny because verse pops into my head every once in a while in life. Well, yes, it does, doesn't it? No, it does. Give me one of your favorites. I enjoy um, the discussion of Juliet when he's, you know, uh, it is the East and Juliet is the sun. And, yes. You know, and, the, yes. and he, you know, it is my lady, it is my love. You know, it, yes. the way that, that he describes Juliet is a young man's view of love and of women and yes. how passionate and unbridled it is. Yes, it is. Um, so I, I, I think that is one of my, one of my I think favorite. Romeo and Juliet is well. Did you see that, that um, Shakespeare in Love? Did you see that? I did. I did. I loved it. I thought I, it was great. I thought it was absolutely spot on. I thought it was great, but I didn't think that it should have beat Saving Private Ryan. That opening sequence in Private Ryan it's when they hit the beach. Amazing. And, you know, at the time... The, when, when I went to see it, there were multiple World War II veterans there, and that added a whole different element to it, where, you know, hard men were crying, and, yes. you know. Yeah. So I thought, I thought it was an excellent film. I think it was up against, it was up against not only Saving Private Ryan, but I think it was also up against Life is Beautiful. Yes. And I thought that was also an excellent film. Yeah. That was, a, that was a power. It was a very good year. That was a good year. It? That yes. was a good year. Yes. I think that that opening sequence uh, in, in Saving Private Ryan uh, is, is, is 
one of the most horrifying and realistic war depictions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, Hard that, to watch. Yes. Hard to watch. I, I don't have a military career like yours. But I have had, uh, I have been on the wrong point of a, of a few things. Um, and I do remember trying to retrace my way in northern Kenya. And I think I probably went into possibly a little bit of Somalia and a bit of, mm. a, a, a bit of southern Ethiopia. And off the road, up in the, slightly up in the distance, about a half a mile away, I could see two trucks and some guys there. Unfortunately, I was where I was driving an ex-Kenya police grey Land Rover, <laughs> and I'm I'm going towards these guys, oh, no. and and they're scrambling and things like that, and I'm seeing these funny little dust bits of dust coming up the road. Oh no! <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> your... c- civilians yeah. aren't aren't trained to respond like that. And and you're I'm hearing just, really? I've never seen that so, <laughs> until one hits the car, and I think. <laughs> and I'm I'm off the road. I'm through the bush for about 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour. They can't be following me. And then slowly I sort of turn around and find the road again. Yep. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an adventure. They could have been, uh, they probably were poachers or sure. smugglers could or something be, like yeah, that. It could be anything. Sphincter time. <laughs> <laughs> So, so when did you commit to theater? When did you decide I am an actor? Or was that 11 and a half? Well, I was quite a good amateur actor. Uh, and I failed to get into Cambridge because I got, as my daughter points out, I have a 16-year-old daughter. Daddy, I want to go to Cambridge <laughs> to study law. Why do you want to study law? Because oh. I want to become rich. That's her first mistake. And I said, but why Cambridge? And she said, because I read in the paper you failed to get into Cambridge because you were drunk at the interview, which was true. Anyway, I went to the University of East Anglia, at, which was a brand new university. Mm-hmm. There were 105 of us in the first year, including postgrads. Wow. Um, so I founded the Dramatic Society and every, every political society just to try and get a bit of argument going. How old are you at this point? 19. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I am a bit embarrassed when I look back on the follies of my youth and the, the loudmouth braggadocio, braggadocio uh, that, uh, that characterized my youthful commitment to equality, humanity, the socialization of the world. Oh, dear me. Never mind. Anyway, um, I did grow up eventually. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I founded the Dramatic Society and did a lot of there, and actually got my first commercial job there uh, for Anglia Television. Um, and then I married uh, a young lady, and, uh, and while waiting for her to graduate, I taught for a year, and then I got a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. This was the thought, you see. All actors, regardless are out of work at least six months of the year. Mm-hmm. When I was working, I would learn my stagecraft. And in that six months out of the year, I would be writing those masterpieces that you would now be saying, oh, how, how, how gifted and talented your writing is. 
Um, unfortunately, I left RADA Sunday night and started work Monday morning in the theater. I had seven weeks out of work in the first five years. Wow. Um, now, I used to think that this was because I was a genius. <laughs> and then slowly it dawned on me that if you're tall, fat, and ugly, and you've got a loud voice, <laughs> you're in a seller's market. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I sort of survived uh, that. And, if um, only I was tall. <laughs> You've got the arrest. <laughs> no, no. Um, anyway, I, I actually, since there may be some of your viewers who who are interested in in acting and the idea of becoming an actor, let, let me warn you: there is more luck involved in becoming an actor than almost any other job I know. Mm. Uh, if you join the army or the, the military, you know, or you join a major company in the mailroom through diligence, hard work, and the elders, the elders dying off, you can rise to the very top of it. There is no reason why there should be another job for an actor. One day, the phone will stop ringing, and I won't know that my career is over. You know, I'll be saying to you, well, <clears throat> actually, right at the moment, I'm, I'm on a very short list for about four or five things, you know, and my, ma my manager says, you know, just, just, a, just a matter of time, it's rather quiet in Hollywood. I won't know that it is all over. And some people can't cope with that level of insecurity. I've, I cope with it because I assume that this job is the last job. Mm, that's smart. And, and, a, and therefore I'm going to... It's a stoic uh, approach yeah. to yeah. life. Yeah. You, you think it's stoic, do you? Yes. I do think it's stoic, yeah, yeah, because you're living in the moment. You're not worried about the next moment. That's right. You're focused on the present. That's right. And making the present as good as it can be. Nick is a great fan of Marcus Aurelius. I am. Ah, uh, yes, he's a wonderful philosopher, isn't he? He is. And, he, and probably a rather good ruler. He tried, at least. <laughs> yes. He tried, at least. Yes. It is impossible to have absolute power without, without it damaging you. Absolutely. I believe that. I believe that completely. And, and, and more than 12 years is, is, is way too much mm -hmm. uh, for most people. Mm -hmm. Though I would, I would uh, there is this passion in politics to have young men in, in, in power. And I would think actually sometimes some of those young men should come back when they're older. I mean, if you're a 40-year-old and you're prime minister or president or something like that, perhaps when you're 60, you might come back for one term because you will have learned what does and doesn't work. And as long as you're still imbued with that passion to, to serve your people, to serve humanity, to serve the world, but primarily your country, your people, and to act 
in their best interest, mm. then, then I'd, I'm, I'm very happy for I, th I think it depends largely on the person, about how I feel like that. Like, it is very obvious that you're a person that's always learning, that's always thinking. Yes. Right? That isn't most people, you know? I think that when I think about my own life, and I think this is fairly common, you know, in your 20s and your 30s, you're really thinking about conquering the world. Yes. Right? You know, I'm in my 40s now. I want to do good work on my own terms, but I don't care about conquering the world. I don't care about being important. I don't care. I really don't care about those things. They don't drive me, but they were important to me 10 years ago. Service is more important to me now. Yes. I think that when I look at somebody, I'll, I'll use the U.S., for example. When somebody's in their 40s or 50s trying to become president, that is the driving force of everything they do. It is the goal. It is, and then once they're there... The power has to be, you know, having people constantly coming to you for what's the answer, what's the solution, what do you want to do? That has to be, you know, it's so easy to get drunk on that power. What we see in our politicians, we see a lot of people that are very, they're very safe with everything. They don't want to make decisions. They don't want to rock the boat. There is a group of people around them kind of controlling those decisions. And I wonder, you know, if you're not a person like you in your 70s, are you going to be able to do something that is different than what you have always known or what you've grown up with? Or what, I think about things as simple as, um, you know, the, the young lady in the back there, right? She, she looks at the way that I use the Internet as old, as yeah. slow. She favors very quick communicate, 15 second videos. And I would rather explain something, which is why I launched this show. Um, that is a my generation way of thinking. And I, I consider myself a person that's always trying to learn. I think it gets harder and harder and harder to change the older you are, unless you are a person that approaches life the way you do. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? When you think about somebody that maybe was prime minister at 40 and you know, do they change? Do those years make them richer? Or do they come back almost entrenched deeper into what they've always known? Well, if you, ha if you haven't grown in that time, you've really wasted that time. I, I agree. Uh, you know, uh, if I was as limited intellectually now as I was when I was 30 or 50, uh, I, I would be... I would be a pretty poor, poor thing. You know, the world has changed. The world's challenges have changed, and you have to keep up and you have to learn to be. But, uh, but with the internet, for instance, you know, I, I, I do have a Facebook page. I don't actually know how to get to it. I have a, an iPhone. Um, it was took me six months to learn how to switch it off. Um, <laughs> You know, there, is, there are those inadequacies. But, I mean, I, I try to read The New Scientist, a magazine mm. called The New yeah. Scientist, which... Yeah, my wife, sort of, my wife subscribes to it, so... Yes, yeah. <laughs> which keeps us up to date mm -hmm. and, uh, and introduces us to concepts that we can't manage. I mean, the idea that, for instance, the way we look at space and time that it's not comprehensible and not compatible to us, but it may be compatible 
in eight-dimensional right. mathematics. Yep. I mean, eight dimensions, come on. Yeah. I went through a phase where I read a lot of quantum physics books and some of the slowest reading I've ever had to do because yeah. I really try to understand what I'm reading. And when you start you know, talking about, well, there, there are multiple dimensions, that, but we can't perceive them because they operate on different senses than we are provided with, yes. and they're at different scales. And it's yes. like, well, I'm, I'm probably not smart enough for this, but I understand kind of, you know, directionally where we're... Well, we can see the difficulty, but we can't see through the difficulty. That's, that's right. Because that's we, right. I mean, I, I certainly am I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm effectively innumerate. The only thing I can say is that I love being around people who are a lot smarter than me. Same here. You learn. Mm -hmm. It's like playing chess, isn't it? Um, when you play chess with... Ha! I was in South Africa once. Uh, we were filming and... Um, Whereabouts? Uh, well, actually, 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 it was Zimbabwe. We're on the set and, you know, we're waiting for the damn camera department and the lighting department to get their act together. <laughs> Sorry, Harry, Hollywood. Uh, uh, <laughs> By the way, Hollywood, in this, in this brief area, these, this drape keeps it's okay, full. It's okay? All right. Um, I don't care how he looks now. Fuck him. <laughs> 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 and we're off. Right. Uh, and um, so I'm, I'm, playing, uh, I'm playing chess with a couple of, couple of members, and this rather stupid-looking stuntman comes up to me and says, John, I see you like to play a game of chess. I wonder if I could have a game with you. I lose the first game. It doesn't matter. You know, that's fine. He's, yeah. he, he can play chess. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the second day, I'm a little bit focused, and I lose the second game. Right. <laughs> I lose the third game and the fourth game. And the fifth game... I catch him trying to lose. And I said, you stop that. <laughs> Come clean. What level do you play? He said, well, I, I have represented South Africa once. Wow. <laughs> but my greatest victory was I held Korchnoi to a draw. <laughs> if ever you need to know, uh, never judge on appearances. Uh, he had a big, silly-looking face because he... His skin was slightly burnt. He, he, he was a stuntman and an interesting boy. He was Bulgarian, mm -hmm. and he married the daughter of the prime minister of Bulgaria. And because she was the prime minister's daughter, yep. they had permission to leave to go and take their honeymoon in Paris. They got to Paris, and they decided they were never going back, and they ended up in South Africa and split up, obviously. Sure. Um, gone to Vegas... And backed himself in backgammon, which was really his game. Mm -hmm. Won $50,000 and got told not to come back. The last I had heard of him was after South Africa had become independent, he was found with a bullet in his head uh, in a car. Yeah. A deal gone down that got wrong or just one of those or killings? Just one of those killings, happened. yeah. Yeah. But yeah. uh, fascinating. Chess is, chess is fascinating. You'll appreciate this. My, uh, my second youngest son, uh, Jack, he, uh, he started playing chess when he was eight. There was like a little club in elementary school. He started playing. We used to play all the time, you know. 
uh, I'm a fair chess player. I'm not good, but I'm, I'm okay. Like, I'm good enough to start, right? Yeah. So he played from eight to the beginning of his 13th year. Uh, and he was, you know, I was taking him to tournaments and he was competing and all this. We played one, you know, we, I think we did, we camped in the backyard and he set up a chess board and we played all night, played three or four games. I beat him two or three of the games and then he beat me. He folded up the chessboard and quit chess. Never played. <laughs> he just, he just, he, he just, just wanted, wanted to beat, beat you. He just wanted to beat me, and he stopped playing, stopped competing, stopped all of it. So I, I thought of it earlier when you were talking about wanting to beat your dad at uh, at rugby. Yes. So that was my, that's my, my chess journey. He's the well, only child that really took it up. I have, I've the reverse story about of that. My father was very good at playing drafts. And he always used to say when I was a little boy, uh, I'll give you a five-pound note when you can beat me at drafts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through the years, I never beat him. Um, and I was at university, and I came back, and he said, come on, let's have a game of drafts. As usual, I lost the first game, and this sort of thing. And the next game, I, I started moving, and he suddenly went. We played, and I won. And he said, well, very good, very good boy, very good. I owe you a five pound note. <laughs> and he never played with me again. <laughs> See, I, 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 I felt so bad. It's like, like, like killing someone. Mm. Well, it's not like killing somebody, but you know what I mean? I do, I do. Spiritually, it's... Um, I do. I don't have that kind of intensity with my kids, but I have told them all that... My goal is to still be able to beat all of them at, at uh, grappling uh, by the time my youngest, who is eight, um, graduates from high school. I said, after that, I'm done. So I've got, I've got 10 years to go where I have to still be able to right. de defeat all of my children at wrestling and jujitsu. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the oldest is now uh, 22. So it's, it's getting, you know, the challenge is there now. Like they're... They're coming for me. Yes, you know, indeed. So. It's how uh, historically we have brought children up to survive in a in a very nasty mm. world. Yeah, you know, um, it is the love and nurture and the bringing on of the young that that we realize when we become uh, adults is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, I I grew up amongst men who would have jumped under a car to push a child out of the way, regardless of, 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 of sex or color or anything like that. That's what men do. And uh, it's a stranger world. It's a nastier world, too. I, I You're looking at Hollywood. Why? I am, because he's making a paper airplane. I, I, was, <laughs> I was hearing the sound, and yeah. I'm like, you know, he's ruining the sound right now. And I was looking over... Going, what is going on? He's got and a I message. I for see you. that he has made a paper airplane. He's got a, a message for you, or to, or for me. Are you going to throw this paper airplane? Already? It depends. What's your next question? Well, I was going to ask you. So you have been around uh, on the screen for me my entire life. Do you do you have a guess as to my first memory of seeing you on the screen? Raiders of the Lost Ark. No. Really. Really. Sliders? No, yo. No. Before that, Shogun. Shogun. Ah. So my my parents loved it. They uh, recorded the mini miniseries when it was on television, 
And uh, so we had it on VHS, you know, a stack of VHS tapes. And we used to watch it all the time. As a very little kid, mm. loved Shogun. Um, it's a great novel. I think it's one of the best novels, mid-20th century novels. Uh, of course, it's not highly regarded because it was popular and, uh, and, 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 <laughs> and the arbiters of good taste don't really much care for popularity. Obscurity is far better. Sure. Um, so how did you end up on Shogun? You know, we were talking about luck. I had called my manager and said, look, the bank manager says I'm 100 quid overdrawn. Uh, can you find me something that will... And my wonderful agents in those days, I would be with them still, but they selfishly chose to die of old age. <laughs> um, they, the uh, bastards! Yes. Self, self, self. <laughs> um, and uh, they called me back and said, look, London Weekend Television, I've got an interview uh, sequence about the murder of a woman called Biddy Gold, and they're examining it because Biddy Gold was living in, uh, living in Hampstead and she was fencing money, sto stolen goods, mm -hmm. to her friends. And she decided to write a novel about it, about a woman who does these things. And obviously the people who were giving her the stuff um, got to hear about it, and they decided to knock her off. So they employed a, 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 a hitman called Bert Rossi, a sort of compact little Italian Londoner, and uh, I was meant to play him. And it was one of the very first times a tape recorder had been used to tape the actual confession or the, the actual mm. interrogation. So you had to be word perfect. And um, it was a real, it was a real challenge to do it. I'll and bet. I, um, I did it and really did it rather well because I hated this guy. Um, so you gave the gun to Heibner and told he he subcontracted it to a guy called Heibner who screwed up, killed her and got caught and then you know, sold him out yeah. and so forth. And, yeah. Um, and he, he he gets dressed up in his very natty little little suit and he's got a very expensive brief in court, and they've heard the jury has heard him say. So says the interrogator. You gave the gun to Heibner and told him to kill Mrs. Gold. Yeah, but you've got to understand there was some very funny fucking people involved there. You know, you know that, that wonderful way that villains try to minimize their role. their role, but, you know, it's part of a far bigger conspiracy than we can possibly talk about in this room. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're talking... We're talking... Well, we're not talking, are we? You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, I hated him. Yeah. And he, by and large, actors create out of love and passion. But I really hated this guy, and I showed him for the rotten little weasel that he was. I actually knew a few villains in London at that time, and they say, hey, John, you come on. A bit strong with old Bert Rossi, doesn't he? I mean, he's a good guy, isn't he? I said, no, he's filth. Uh, anyway, he, so they, they, the jury had heard him confess that, yeah. And he gets up in court, you know, and he addresses them and says, look, I've been a bad boy in my time. I mean, you know, when, when, when gambling wasn't allowed, I, you know, I used to 
run things for the bookmaker and things like that. And yeah, I've I've skirted with the law. Let's face it, but I would never, ever, ever have anything to do with the murder of a woman. And they let him off. Wow. Oh, anyway. Wow. Uh, I wonder whether the jury was rigged as well, but. Uh, but anyway, so <laughs> you, so to, Shogun to, on, to answer your question, Back to Shogun now. your skin tingles, your scalp itches, your mouth is dry, you can't seem to concentrate. You wonder if there is something living just under your skin that requires an old priest, a new priest, and some ancient artifact to return you to being a normal human being. Yeah, maybe that energy shot wasn't worth it. But sometimes, on those long drives, on those military missions, on those police shifts, on those all-nighters, you do need an energy bump. And there's a way to do that without a ton of sugar and caffeine. There's Ruck Pack. Ruck Pack is the premier energy shot for high performers. Developed by members of the most elite special operations units on planet Earth, along with scientists that understand how the body actually works. Ruck Pack combines amino acids, nutrients, and minerals that are consumed by the brain and directly support cognitive function. So this isn't just getting hopped up on caffeine. This is giving your brain energy. Because of that ingenious, amazing, incredible design, Ruck Pack gives you immediate high levels of energy without the shakes, and maybe more importantly for those using it in life or death situations, without the crash. So if you need top tier energy, there's only one answer, Ruck Pack. So get it at ruckpack.com. That's R-U-C-K-P-A-C-K.com. Ruckpack.com. There was a casting lady called Maud Spector who was casting this big American show. And there was one character that she really was having difficulty finding. She'd gone to the theater. She'd seen the play to halfway. And she came home. And as she was taking her earrings off, she switched on the television and she just caught two minutes of that. And the next day, she phoned my agents mm -hmm. and said, why haven't I met this extraordinary young actor? She coached me through the auditions. And when I got it, she said, now listen, John, if you do this as well as I think you will, you'll probably never have to look for work again. Hmm. And that was almost true. In fact, as, as much as can be said, it was true. And I knew I was on a winner when Eric Berkovici, who wrote the screenplay, came up to me at the, right, at the first time and he said, now listen to me, you little shit. You're playing my part. <laughs> 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 it, was, it was a wonderful show. Buffoni was going through a bad divorce at the time. Okay. And there were a lot of very anti-Japanese feeling about uh, him. Sure. Yeah. And of course, uh, he, he was not highly, he was not regarded as their greatest actor. He was sort of a, a B actor uh, who had suddenly been recognized in the West as and mistaken for an A actor. Actually, I think Buffoni was magnificent. I think I he was one of the finest actors I've worked with. I, mean, I thought he was amazing in that role. Oh, yeah. Uh, Richard, Richard Chamberlain, I love that man, this side idolatry. He taught me what a leading man does. 
we were in Tokyo in the tanks shooting the the sea sequences, the the, the you know the the storm sequences. Yep. We were meant to be there for three weeks. It ran to eight weeks. Huge loss of time in terms of production. And then we go down to the Mie Peninsula, a little place called Owasi, where the Japanese had built the first galley that they had built in 300 years. Mm. It was top heavy. And we went down there. The temperature is well above 100 degrees. The humidity is incredible. We were accustomed to showering and changing our shirts four or five times a day. And when you walked out of the hotel, you were instantly sweating and clammy. There is a perfect sea. The water is still, but, but, but the, the, there is no break in the surface of the water. So the sun is hitting the water and coming straight up into our eyes. And the boat is rocking like that. And almost everybody starts to feel seasick. Now, the director, um, Jerry London, he's taken three or four Dramamines. Mm -hmm. He is lying horizontally <laughs> on the deck. Yeah. Okay. Uh, go again. Okay, and... Go ahead. Fine, go on. So he's not even looking through anything. He's just... <laughs> uh, Chewy Elizondo, the lighting cameraman, tough, uh -huh. compact, little Mexican-American, tough as a nail, you know, is, is shooting, and when cut comes, he gets, he, he puts, the, he leaves the camera, goes to the side of the ship, throws up, comes back to do the next Wow. Shot. Now, by two o'clock, everyone is looking at, at, at Richard. Uh, because morale is uh, just about as low as you can get. And, you know, we're looking to Richard, and, and I think we were hoping that he'd come and he'd say, look, come on, guys, this is absurd. This is above and beyond the call of duty. But Richard, being a leading man and knowing what it takes, he would sit down between takes, take, put the fan up, put the, the, the umbrella up, take the fan and do, uh, go like that. And when somebody vomited in his eye line, he would just change his eye line like that. And he just acted it as if, hey, what's the problem? And he got us through the first day. The second day was hard, but it got less and less, and we were able to do it. But if ever I've seen a man hold a company and a crew together, it was Richard at that time. That's amazing. It was so bad that we that they sent a then 26-year-old executive vice president from MGM mm -hmm. to cut an hour out of the show. There might have been some slight deception there when, because I was interested in what Berkovici's response would be. Berkovici was a somewhat, how can I put this gently, a somewhat combustible writer. I mean, he was the guy who had gone well, he's into... Italian. You know, yeah, it kind of comes yeah, with the territory. Absolutely. Yeah. He'd, he'd, gone, he'd, gone, he'd gone into the writer's building one day, and when everyone was assembled, he said, right. And he opened his briefcase, took out an Uzi and a hand grenade, and said, today the writer's view will prevail. <laughs> Got banned from the writer's building. I <laughs> so I said, I said to him, um, 
because we all got news that this guy was coming yeah. with authority to cut an hour yeah. out of the show. And I said to him, so Eric, um, should we be, be prepared for a major explosion tomorrow or just a minor one? And he said, young man, watch, learn. The guy came in, and I kid you not, he's, he's, he's 26 years old. He's got a T-shirt on, show business is my life. Oh, no. You know. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, and he's doing, the, he's doing that over-familiar thing, you know, Eric baby, you know, uh, hand on the shoulder. Listen, uh, I'm, I'm here to help you. I'm, uh, you know, I'm your buddy in this. I, you know, I, know, I already hate him. Yeah. I already hate him. <laughs> uh, uh, um, and... And um, but look, I've got to take an hour out of your show. You yeah. Know? Um, I think Yale or Harvard, and, and 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 starting at the bottom in the company because you know an uncle or some connection. Sure, sure. You know, you always start. Yeah. You know, vice president, yeah. a small executive vice presidency. You know, just to, <laughs> just, to, you know, just to get them started. Get rid yeah. of it. You can jump the mail room and all that. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Eric listened to him and nodded his head and said, yes, look, I, I, I understand, I understand. All I would ask is that here's the script and um, all I would ask you to do is any scene that you take out, make me some fairly detailed notes of how we're to get from the scene we've, we, we've, we've left <laughs> to the next scene. <laughs> of course, baby, of course. Yeah. I realized then that yeah, that the trap was laid because yeah. the the story is so good, but the screenplay, you couldn't take a word out of a sentence. You certainly couldn't take a sentence out of a scene, and you certainly couldn't take a scene out without there being repercussions, an, a, yeah. a discontinuity. Yeah, now you're talking about rewriting the whole thing, All which right. is a total yeah. And uh, he said, yeah, "Of course." Eric, maybe anything, of course, but I, I got to do it, and we all know. Yeah, that. And, yeah. Uh, and Eric said, uh, "Oh, and by the way, look, um, a hotel needs your passport because, uh, you know, it, it all goes, goes goes to the local police, and they check us all out, and then they give you know." And he said, "Yeah, fine, fine, just get a passport." He leaves the room, and Eric turns to us, and he says, "Right now, you sons of bitches," he says, uh, "Your job is to." Take him out every night, get him drunk, get him laid, if you can. And, of course, after a week, he hasn't been able to do anything. And more than that, he's really beginning to struggle with, yeah, I can cut this scene, but wait a minute, oh, okay. Uh, and it's not helped by the fact that, you know, that he's, he's got a hangover. He's got a bit of a hangover, yeah. and, um, and it's hot. And, uh, and after sort of two weeks, the studio is saying, uh, how are you getting on? Yeah, yeah, no, pretty well, pretty good. Um, after three weeks, they're saying, where are the cuts? Uh, and after four weeks, they're saying, you've got to come back with the cuts. And he'd, he'd go to Eric, and, and Eric was saying, I'm sorry, we haven't got that. The passports haven't come back yet. You know, By the end of the fifth week, we'd caught up with everything. So we saved the show. <laughs> 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 Oh, that's amazing. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, you brought it up. So, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. How did you end up there, and how did that affect your life? Because lovely Maud Spector cast me in Shogun, 
and, uh, and I was then asked to do uh, Victor Victoria. One of those wonderful moments where a young actor goes, looks at the talent around him and thinks, if I can hold my own in this lot, I can probably do it. I mean, Julie Andrews, James Garner. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was, oh, I didn't actually answer your question about Mufuni, but I'll get back to one day. Um, <laughs> and Blake Edwards, the extraordinary, magical, mad, brilliant Blake Edwards. Blake came to me one day and he said, Steven Spielberg's uh, called me up. He's thinking of, uh, of casting you in a new film that he's doing. And uh, he asked me what sort of person you are. And I said, well, he's probably the sort of person that beats children and kicks dogs. And <laughs> I said, fair enough. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I got sent the script. Now, this was right after 1941, which most of us, I would think, would regard as actually a rather good film. Mm. But it hadn't been as successful got it. as yeah. the other ones. And, and all the critics were saying, oh, the boy genius has been exposed, you know, he hasn't got it anymore. It's, a, it's amazing how people want successful people to fail. Mm. It's always the case. I, I worked once with Jonathan Miller, the great Jonathan Miller, who was a producer, director, polymath, a doctor, uh, and one of the most renaissance mind one of the men with the most renaissance type mind that i've ever met him he could he could be talking about shakespeare and allude to the latest sort of you know discoveries in 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 in, in psychology at harvard a, a harvard study to to illuminate this this piece of shakespeare and i was reading these bad reviews of a play that he'd done and when he came into the rehearsal and I put down the paper quickly, and he said, oh, you've seen it, have you? I said, Jonathan, how do you cope with, you know, and poor Jonathan Miller, who couldn't, uh, uh, you know, the only one of the beyond the fringe team who never grew up. What condescension from third-rate hacks. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, well, you know, John, when you're below the horizon, it's, it's in the journalist's interest to make you something. But once you're above the horizon, then the only mileage really is in pushing you back down again. Mm. And that, that's sort of, sort of like it. And um, anyway, I got the script from Steven Spielberg. I read it. My agent called up and he said, well, what do you think? And I said, I've never read a script like this. There are pages and pages of scene descriptions, visual descriptions about what is happening. Very little dialogue. And he said, well, uh, you don't have to do it, you know. And I said, what do you mean you don't have to do it? Of course I want to do it. Steven Spielberg's a brilliant director. This is either going to be the biggest catastrophe of all time, <laughs> or it might just set a new pattern in fashion in filmmaking. Either way, I want in. <laughs> he called us together uh, the, first, the first time we were all together for a, a read. And, uh, and he said, now, look, um, in recent films, I've gone to 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 takes. And when I've said printed, somebody has said, well, how's that different from take three? And I see the difference, but clearly nobody else can. This time, it's my friend's money. I'm going to shoot quickly. 
I'm going to shoot fast. What I intend to do is, is print first and second takes. There will be mistakes there. But what I think we'll get is a freshness and an immediacy, like, like a painter throwing paint on, on a canvas and, and, and just working it uh, freely. And that's essentially what he did. And so, we would improvise. So everything was only a couple of takes? Yes. Wow. Yes. It was brilliant. The analogy that I would make would be, and I, I certainly wasn't around when he was around, but it, it must have been like working with a young Mozart at the height of his power. I think that if film had never had sound, Spielberg would be regarded as the greatest film director of all time. Hmm because he can tell a story through a lens, I think better than any other, any other filmmaker that I've known. And I've known some really great ones. His weakness was dialogue in the sense that I think early on he was, was nervous about creating dialogue. Obviously, over the years, you know, his assurance has grown. And, yeah, and, he doesn't have that problem. Yeah, yeah he doesn't have that problem. <laughs> But uh, working with him was a real revelation, just a revelation. I think, I think he is absolute magic. How did that film change your life, though? Because that, you know, Shogun was, was a big series, but I mean... Particularly in America. In America, it was, it was yeah, big. But, 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 but Shogun... I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one for that's right. all time. I mean, that... that yeah. You could, I couldn't walk into a restaurant without the orchestra striking up bum ba bum 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 ba bum <laughs> it was wonderful I, I should have i should have moved to the states then and but I, I i delayed for a few years because i had a few personal issues um and uh i went to do a minor television series and 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 that came to an end the first season and uh but i stuck around but i really I found in Hollywood that, n n the other Hollywood, the one that's named after you, Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> um, for an English actor, it was wonderful. There was you know, a lot more money, which one spent, of course. Um, but really, the quality of the work wasn't that good. Mm. Um, and uh, 20 years passed but, like that. And I can tell that matters to you. Like, I feel like you, yeah. I mean, obviously you have to pay the bills, but. Yes, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I've done some awful stuff. <laughs> but it, What's but, the worst thing you've done? <laughs> i tell you one that I remember. I did a little show called Chupacabra. <laughs> I gave a reasonable performance in it. And I went and saw the premiere and saw that he just cast everybody else was an amateur actor or a friend of a friend or things like that. <laughs> and it was awful. I was sitting there afterwards with my head in my hand and somebody came up to you and said, uh, Mr. Reese Davis. I said, shut up, go away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've come special, bugger off. <laughs> It was a guy who had actually come from China who was going to offer me a job. Oh, God. <laughs> um, and, and I was rude to him. But, you know, sometimes you go in, you look at a script, and you think there's something here that could actually work. 
it's not right, but I think we could fix this while we're shooting it if, if the director and the writer is good. And sometimes that does happen. Sometimes it's just a little journeyman piece that you think, yeah, this is okay. It's a small, it's never going to make, you know, the, the top 10 films of the year, but it's okay and it's all right to entertain. I personally believe that actors should just get on and do the work. You know, if you pick and choose, well, you may have an extraordinary career. But if I only work once every 10 years, mm. uh, I, I would think of myself as being a bit precious. Your job is to make it work, make the dialogue work, make the scene work. Mm. Uh, and that's a challenge. And, and acting is a muscle. If you don't use it, it atrophies. Uh, and uh, I love it. I love walking onto a set thinking I've got no idea how I'm going to play this scene. But I sort of know the words. I could get rid of those. They're a bit dumb. Pretty dumb. Okay, now let's just see how the, how the other actor is going to say. He starts the scene. How do I, I'm just going to listen. The 93 times a day I'm a bad actor is when I've stopped listening. This is an improvement because at the start of my career it was 98 times. Not listening to the other actors? Not listening properly. Hmm. Because I know the lines, I know how the lines should be said, I don't care how you prepare. That's, when that happens, it's the kiss of death to a scene. You know, your job and my job is to make the scene work. All right? Now I'm going to say this line very quickly and you're going to have to respond back. If you're a, if you're a, a, a good actor... You'll, you'll, you'll bat it in a way that I don't know what I'm not expecting. And, yeah, and you'll go, my, aren't you clever? And I go, ah, that's the way you want to play. And <laughs> it, be it becomes a dance of minds. The great virtue of working at somewhere like the Royal Shakespeare Company is that every night there are at least five or six actors on the stage who are looking for a, a fight. Not all actors are fully alive all the time. Yep. Some actors are seldom fully alive. They're competent, but they're nothing more than that. But at the RSC, you'd go on and you'd look around the stage and you'd suddenly snap a line at somebody in a way you'd never done in rehearsal and they would look at you and bang, send it straight on to the next guy. And suddenly there were four or five great nobles fighting over the bones of England, you know. And you come off the stage and you and you you'd hear the audience lean forward. And there's different sort of silence in the theater. You come off the stage and hug each other. Ah, wonderful stuff. Do you prefer the theater or do you prefer the screen? Well, I've done by now. I've done more on the screen than I have theater. I love the theater, um, and I will get back to it one of these days. But, but, but I just, I like work. I like getting up in the morning at some ungodly hour. I'm actually now a, a, a morning person, mm -hmm. and um, which incidentally, as we saw in New Scientist last week, probably means... <laughs> I haven't read the new issue yet, so... <laughs> apparently, apparently morning people tend to have more Neanderthal in their gene than evening people. I can't like wait them. to go home and tell my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I, I love going out and solving those problems, you know, because every, every scene is a problem. Every, you know, every scene is just something on paper. How do we make it live? How do we bring it alive? How can we make it interesting? How can we burn energy in a way that will just bring this, these words, these ideas, these images on paper alive? And uh, yeah, I get to do this most days of my life. It's not work. It's a paid, it's a paid opportunity to have an imaginative holiday. Uh, I love it. Love it. It's it's so interesting to hear you talk about your approach to it. Um, Hollywood. The, how I met Hollywood is we made a movie together, and uh, we made a, a terrible film called Range Fifteen, and it's a it's a zombie comedy. And um, it was it was made entirely by veterans, and that that was kind of the backstory. So I was a veteran personality, and uh, some. Some of my friends were also veteran personalities. They now run a, a huge coffee company called Black Rifle Coffee. Oh, yes. And uh, so, but back then we were, you know, I ran a, an apparel brand, they ran an apparel brand, and we came up with this idea for this, this movie. And um, when this guy heard about it, he reached out and he said, I'm going to be on this set. He didn't ask. He said, I am going to be on the set. So he came on as the second unit director, and it was, a, it was a godsend. None of us are real actors. And so for us, the challenge was, you know, how do we, per, how do, we were playing ourselves, the car, caricatures of ourselves. How do we play this and know the lines? And, and we knew everything cold, right? But the first thing that I said after watching the rough cut of the film uh, was, I'm so bad of an actor that I can't even play myself. <laughs> <laughs> so to hear you talk about your approach to it and how you make like I was worried about getting the lines out and making sure the lines were somewhat believable but you're thinking about how do I change the lines so that it shocks my contemporaries so that they have to respond with something that is not practiced because you and I don't you know when we're engaged in a conversation we are listening to each other and responding. That's it, right. It's 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 uh, you know it's it's spontaneous. It had done, it's unlearned. Our breathing is right. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not having to sort of say these lines and then. Uh, 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 <laughs> That's that. right. That's um, right. Or thinking about how you're walking. Or thinking right. about where your hands are. That's right. Yeah. The bananas. <laughs> my my first agent used to say. I, I said, "Did you like the show?" And he said, "Yeah." What are you going to do with the bananas? <laughs> Changing the lines. You, you, you seldom change the lines in the course of a scene unless you're dealing with an actor who's roughly on the same wavelength. Got it. Uh, you know, obviously, you, you, you go to the director and you go to the actor and say, look, what function does this line serve? Mm -hmm. You know, this is padding. If we just cut that... Like that, and we go from there to there, it makes the scene sharper. You can improvise mm -hmm. with really interesting, with good actors who know how to improvise. Mm -hmm. But you would be, it would be, it would be so unfair for an experienced actor like me to to start improvising in a scene with with a beginner 
you know, who's learned the lines and, and you know. Yeah, you, you would destroy me. No. Yeah. I would be crying in the corner. You know? <laughs> well, if I did that, that, wouldn't, <laughs> that would mean that I was a total shit and not serving the show. Sure. What I should do is find a way of bringing the quality you have. I mean, that look on your face now of, 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 of listening, of absolute lack of conscious, of self-consciousness, that is a lovely quality in the camera. And if I can get you to do that in the camera, I'm serving, the, I'm, I'm serving our scene, I'm serving our producers who put up the money for this. Sure. We, we actors, you know, it's, we, we, we're not, we're there to make money for the people who've invested in the film. Of course. It's not enough just to make a movie and say, God, I was so good in that. You've got to help go out and, and, and sell, sell it and as sell well. Film. That's uh, right. You've no idea how important we feel we are. <laughs> <laughs> I have some idea. <laughs> so I will say one of the very nice moments of going through that, so, you know, with, with Range 15, we raised all the money ourselves because no Hollywood uh, production company was going to pay for a bunch of non-actors to, you know, to put together this film. But um, the very first person, the first, you know, the first real actor to sign on was William Shatner. Good for Bill. And so he, and once he was on, suddenly there was interest. And the second person to sign on, it was very interesting. So we get this call. This this guy's like, hey, um, I'd love to be in the movie. Uh, you know, I was like, you know, yeah, sure. Like, who, you know, who is this? And like, you know, this is Sean Astin. And, um, I, you know, I'm like, this is, you know, this isn't Sean Astin. I'm getting messed with right now. Like, who is this really? And long story short is after a few rounds, it really was Sean Astin. And he's done a lot of, he's donated a lot of time to uh, veteran causes. And uh, for a while served... Um, at the behest of the president, you know, uh, as a essentially consultant to the military. And I didn't know any of this. So he had just finished his first Iron Man. And so his plan was he was going to fly from the Iron Man to set and he was going to shoot for a day with us in this cameo. And then he was going to fly home and he did it. Good and so, him. so Sean Astin, your contemporary yes. on uh, Lord of the Rings, um, we was he was amazing. He yes, was he amazing, was. and even he couldn't walk because he had just done the Iron Man. He was in flip flops, yeah. um, so we had to shoot, you know, waist up, and um, he took the time to do videos uh, between between uh, takes for anybody that wanted like you know for their like he did a video for my kids who are huge lord of the rings fans and like that yeah. for me it was star wars and raiders of the lost ark but for my kids it was lord of the rings that's yes. what they grew up on imagine a media agency that can make a documentary that qualifies for academy award voting imagine another that created a billboard charting music video for five for fighting imagine Another that has raised so much money for nonprofits in its first year working on the Classy.org platform that at the end of the year, it was named as only the second marketing partner in Classy's history. Imagine another firm that can cover your events anywhere on planet Earth and provide a compelling series of videos about those events 
immediately into your needs. And imagine another still that can help your e-commerce business take it to the next level. Now imagine that they're all the same business, Diesel Jack Media. Some of you might be saying, hey, Nick, isn't that your company? And to that I answer, can a company like Diesel Jack Media really be owned? Or can it merely be coaxed out like a beautiful butterfly on a spring day? As you listen to this podcast that, by the way, Diesel Jack Media created, you may be asking yourself, what's our secret? It's simple. We try not to suck. Sounds easy, right? It should be. But somehow, marketing companies and media agencies always seem to get it wrong. You see, we don't make PowerPoints about doing work. We do the work because we like the work. And if one of our ideas doesn't work, you know what we do? We try another one again and again and again until our ideas start to work. Because not quitting until it's right is at the heart of not sucking. And as previously mentioned, that's what we try not to do here. Diesel Jack Media, we try not to suck. Visit us at dieseljackmedia.com. That is dieseljackmedia.com. So with that as a segue, yes. what was it like being on, on you know, Lord of the Rings? Yeah. I couldn't stand the damn book. <laughs> <laughs> Number one. <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> Number one son came home from boarding school at half term. We didn't see him for five days. He was just reading Lord of the Rings. He'd come down for food and then he'd go back to his room and read. Number two son and I, I tried to read it to him, you know, at, uh, at, um, at bedtime. He would fall asleep and I would fall asleep. In the end, we agreed it was, it was boring. So you can imagine now that I hear that Lord of the Rings is going to be made. I'm not a fan. And I think, oh, God. But, John, it's a big production, and it's going to be shot in New Zealand. New Zealand? Hmm. <laughs> I've never been to New Zealand. <laughs> be rather nice to have a month of filming in New Zealand, get to see the place, and, uh, I mean, nothing's going to happen about the film, for God's sake. I mean... Who's the director? Oh, yeah. He'd done a couple of small movies, but yeah, then yeah. yeah, anyone can direct a, you know, a four-part or six-parter part if they've got four weeks or six weeks to sure. shoot it. Anyone can do it. He's okay, but he's no idea what he's letting himself into. You know, I'd done the big shows. I mean, I had done Shogun in Japan five months. Uh, I'd done Raiders of the Lost Ark around the world five yeah. months. And a War and Remembrance, 18 months of principal photography wow. around the world. Wow. You know, and this guy, <laughs> this guy in New Zealand, that well-known capital of the film industry, <laughs> boy, I can think of all those great classics that came out of there. Besides, they tried to make a film of it before, and it yeah, failed. Yeah, yeah. The book cannot be made into a script. And uh, so they sent me a little bit of a script, and I think I was playing John Noble's part in, in, in the, for the audition. So I did it and sent it in, thought, yeah, if I could get that. Month in New Zealand, no problem. See the place a bit, sure. take a bit of money, come home. And then they offered me Gimli, and I thought, jeez. 
20, 30 odd years trying to be recognized and I'm going to put myself in a full prosthetic? No, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. Oh, don't worry about that, said my then manager. Uh, you know, they tell me they'll get the makeup down to an hour. And I said, you don't know anything about this. <laughs> this is going to be one of the longest make job, makeup jobs in history. It's going to be hell. I'm going to spend more time in the makeup chair <laughs> than I will on set each day. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. And, I, and then two things happened. My then agent, who is actually now my manager, said, look, John, we've only just signed you. Um, if you're not prepared to do this part, I don't know that we can continue to represent you, which is a bit of a kick below the belt, yeah. really. But it was really number one son, the great Tolkien lover, Ben, my beloved son. He said, Dad, if you turn this down, I think you'll be you're nuts. And I said, why? And he said, think about it. In every bookshop in the world, not just the English-speaking world, That's the right. world, there's that much of book space devoted to Tolkien. That's right. Just think of what that means in terms of a fan base. And I thought, hmm. He makes All a right. point. All right. <laughs> okay, okay, point. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. So what it meant was... How I'll was go, the makeup? I'll go, to, I'll go to New Zealand. I'll just check out what's going to happen. When I've confirmed that... You know, they haven't got a hope in hell of this getting the thing. I will go to the director and say, look, I made a terrible mistake. I've got a sick wife in England, uh, and I really can't be, afford to be away this long. Sure. And he would have had to let me go. Um, I wouldn't have done any shooting. He would have let me go. So I went there, and every morning, every afternoon, I went and visited a different department and spent time talking to them what they were doing. To begin with, they were unbelievably enthusiastic. There was a measure of passion for the project that you never get in the more blasé Hollywood or sure. Paris or yeah. Rome yeah. or anywhere like that. Secondly, there was a level of expertise in every department. You could see when they were making the costumes, the level of detail in them. Mm. When you were looking at the armor and the armory, Extraordinary. When you were looking at the makeup prosthetics that they were designing, incredible. When you were looking at the the the, the scenery that they were building, I was I was talking to the production designer when the phone went, and he said, "Excuse me, a second, John." Yeah, really. Oh God! He said, "That's our printer." He says, "We've just." He prints our, our, our plans for the thing. He's just, we've just passed the first five kilometers of prints, right? This is pre-production of the first one. Wow. Five wow. kilometers of those, you know, architectural prints they had already printed. And I suddenly realized that I was dealing with a level of expertise that you would only find in the great film capitals of the world. Mm. I thought, God, they, they're really putting the boat out here. Anyway, I've still got a let out. Let's go and see how he's directing his actors and his crew. How does he manage his crew? And I saw this little man 
always dressed in shorts, even up a mountain in winter, in snow, dressed in shorts. The Kiwi way. I respect it. Uh, and, <laughs> and I watched him handle his crew with such confidence, everyone coming up to him, asking him questions, and him listening and saying, no, I think we're going to do it that way. And just watching him handle his actors with such ease and accomplishments and and them falling in love with his direction and mm. him. And I realized that uh, there was something extraordinary being created. And I'm proud to say that I was the very first person who stood up at this press conference and said, ladies and gentlemen of the press, revise your expectations upwards. Three predictions. This film, this first film, is going to be bigger than the new Star Wars. Wow. At which point, Peter Jackson went. <laughs> 18 months later, he came up to me and said, you know when you said that? And I said, and when you went like that? He said, yes. As a matter of fact, we just, I've just had the, uh, the, the numbers come in for the day. We've actually just outgrossed them already. Wow. Um, and uh, I said, secondly, these films will be regarded as among the greatest of, of this decade, mm. this coming decade. Thirdly, in 20 years' time, when you look back, Lord of the Rings is going to be amongst your top 10 greatest films of all time. There was a, a laughter with the old bigger than Star Wars sort of thing. Actor claims... Lord of the Rings is going to be bigger than the new Star Wars. Actor, little shit, who the hell is that? <laughs> um, anyway, and, uh, but I'd, I'd, I'd done a 180 degree turn on the thing because when you have been around the big ones, you get a smell for that's, that smell, in, that, that sense in your nose you recognize again when you're in the presence of something extraordinary. And I sense that. And I, I never lost any belief that, that it would be less than extraordinary and hugely successful. Partly because the genius of Fran uh, and Peter, they had turned the script into a great film, turned an unfilmable film into a great story. And I think I started by saying I couldn't stand the book. Obviously, I had to read and reread it. And the first couple of times I tried, I did fall asleep. Hmm. But by the third or fourth time, I began to see what Tolkien was doing. Hmm. It isn't the traditional narrative. It is those Icelandic narratives that starts here and then meanders off to this point here, uh, and, and then meanders sort of back over there. And then there's this extraordinary fellow here, and, and that somehow relates to that. But they had managed to draw those threads together to tell the story. I find it very interesting that you absorbed Aristotle and Shakespeare at a very young age with ease and yet Tolkien was a challenge for you. 
But it's a different style of writing. It is. It is. Uh, it's long. It's not staccato. It's not. And and that that leads to an interesting point. All audiences are slightly different. Of course. Um, but the Lord of the Rings audience, almost invariably, is very intelligent. And I thought about that for a while, and it's quite obvious, isn't it? They were all people who'd either read the book to begin with, and it's a damn big, thick book. Yes. And if you can get through it, that acts as a sort of a sieve of intelligence anyway. Probably why I failed in the first time. <laughs> um, or, or they, they saw the film, loved it, and then went back to the book. Uh, of all the audiences I know, the real Lord of the Ring aficionados are collectively the most intelligent of the audiences that I've known. I knew the Icelandic sagas, and I should have jumped to what he was doing a lot sooner than I did. Once I grasped what he was trying to do, then, it, then, then I could understand it and accept it as a different form of narrative. It, it was just the rigidity of my own in mind that it, prevented it. As an outsider, it seems like the cast was unusually tight. Yes. There was only one grumpy old bugger in the whole picture. <laughs> and I wore his shoes every day. <laughs> 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 it was the damn makeup. I mean, just hours and hours of your life, you know, was sitting in the chair and having to be having to be awake with your eyes closed so that then you could do that and that and that and all that sort of thing. But you had to be awake for five hours at a time. M my brain can't take too much pop music. Um, uh, <laughs> And, and so I was the miserable bugger who smiled, you know, when I'm in the makeup chair, we're going to have classical music. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I, I, yes. But it was not easy because, because they were using uh, medical adhesive to mm -hmm. put the makeup, and it went right under the eyes. So that it was a wonderful prosthetic. Medical adhesive will not give you an allergy. It is hypoallergenic. But it's not designed. It's bonds to the surface oh, yeah. cells of the skin. Yeah, it must have been rough. It's not designed to be taken off, you know, on a daily basis, yep. and so it started removing cells, and so I lost all the skin under my eyes wow. around there. And and when you have that abuse of the skin, the body is pumping as much lymph and a, a fluid there to help heal it as possible. Mm. So the face became swollen. And you just imagine sort of raw meat around the eyes. I looked hideous. It was so bad that I, my then lady friend said, <laughs> Honey, I don't know how to say this, but I can't bear to look at you. I have to go back to L.A. <laughs> the shark went hungry that winter. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you and Orlando Bloom had a, uh, on screen, like a perfect marriage. Yes. Uh, how, how was it working together? I used to get asked this question quite a lot, but generally by teenage girls. Um, Mr. Reese Davis. <laughs> um, I, I get confused with teenage girls a lot. You know. <laughs> uh, 
Mr. Rhys Davis, um, did you and Orly hang out a lot together? <laughs> and I, I used to have to say, well, now, look, he was 19 turning 20. I was 54 turning 55. If we'd been hanging out a lot together, you would have some reason to worry, I think, yes. <laughs> but I just mean, you know, you, you had a very natural... Yes. performance together. Yes, I indeed. mean, I would say more than any other characters in the in the film. Yes, with, you know, I think the only the only relationships that I think would even give it a run would be you know Sam and Frodo. Yes, you know? that's right. Well, that, that's what the script called for, and he was a young actor straight out of drama school, mm. uh, and he was wonderful. He was absolutely cast right, and he had none of the doubt that an older actor might have had you know you know because when you're that age you know that you are god's answer to the theater and to film um, you are you know you're a star and the fact that you've got this starring role just confirms it really um, he was wonderful i always worry about young actors being so successful that young because it's awfully hard to live mm -hmm. up to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's survived and he's doing well, but I think that he would have hoped for more and bigger starring roles afterwards. But you know, sometimes that comes later in a career. Sure. You've there, been in the world quite a bit. What have you found interesting about actors? <laughs> One of the things that I've found interesting about actors is there there is a desire always to be in the limelight, to to be to be have that spotlight placed on you, and to be performing for a larger audience, and to um, and you know when I've met actors that are that were once very big and now are still great, but they're not what they were in terms of audience appreciation, or they're getting smaller roles, still great roles you can see that it affects them. You can see that there is like a uh, looking for my next chance. Like there is a, yes. uh, I don't know is, how to is describe Is the word it. desperation? There, there is, a, there's a little bit of desperation. There is. And it's, it's um, I don't know that this exists in any other careers except for maybe music. I'm sure music is very similar. But where you can do great work for a long time and then it's very arbitrary sometimes. Yes. Like, it, it is down to luck, what I was saying, the next job. There is no certainty that there will be an, a next job. And I've noticed, uh, and I would include myself in this, there is a time in many male actors' lives, and I'm sure the females have, a, have the equivalent of it, around between sort of 45, 55, where they often get into a very, a very dark place. There is a dark night of the soul. I met a marvelous, I'm not gonna mention his name, marvelous actor about two years ago. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's, he was starting to make internationally acclaimed films and doing the parts he was playing really well. He wasn't a star, but he was heading that way. Mm. And I, I bumped into him and said, oh, my dear fellow, how are you doing? Are you gainfully employed? He said, terribly. I'm doing terribly. There is no work. 
I have lost the house. I have lost my wife. I am 53 years old and I cannot stay in the profession. I have got to start again and find a job. I mean, that's real heartbreak. Mm. By and large, if they can get through that and stay the course, they can come through it and come out better. I worked with, I can use his name now, a repertory actor called Donald Palmier. We worked together. I thought he was crap. I thought everything he did was false. <laughs> everything was labored, overacted, mannered, false. Some months afterwards, I was new. I was I was a, a repertory actor then. I went to the the new the latest theatre, and I you know when you when you go there you, you it, it's your job and you you pop in just see what the what the show is like that they're doing this week, and I sat at the back, and it was okay, but there was somebody there, and I sort of I thought I know this guy. He's superb. He's wonderful, yet I know him somehow. I don't, don't recognize him, but who the hell is it? And when the lights went up and I picked up somebody else's program, it was him. Wow. He had just come through that low point, mm. and he'd got back out, and he, and he was wonderful. You know, sometimes we hit, we, 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 sometimes we dig a hole, and we just keep going down. And, and, and sometimes if we hold on long enough, we can and will come out. Generally with the help of our fellow actors, I suspect. And that's one of the great things about the camaraderie of actors. Because we are all essentially vagabonds and gypsies <laughs> and a shifty lot that no one should seriously think about knowing or employing. We tend to look after each other. Do you want to tell us about the plane crash? I am doing King Solomon's Mines in Zimbabwe. As, as people do from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, the guy who had the animals there had a light plane, and he had a young ment he, he was mentoring a young man who'd just been accepted to join uh, Air Zimbabwe as a com commercial pilot. The guy had about 250 hours, which, as I now know, are the, the dangerous time. He, he, he said, look, why don't I take you up to, to uh, Inyanga? And there was a group of people. And we'll go up and have, have lunch and fly back. Gives me airtime and all that sort of thing. So there are six of us in a single-engined, 180-horse Piper, starting off from Harare Airport, which is one of the longest airports in the world, mm -hmm. longest runways in the world, 5,200 feet. And we are flying up to a bush strip, 5,800 feet. It's a hot African afternoon. At the end of the rainy season, when it rains in Africa, as you know, mm -hmm. you know, everything goes up five feet straightway. Yeah. And we land on this bush strip now I'm a student pilot myself. I've got 13 hours. And I'm looking at this and thinking, how the hell are we going to get off? Yeah. And I'm saying to the, 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 the pilot, look, forgive me, but I, I can't see how you're going to make this takeoff. And he said, you know, oh, 
short field takeoff. And I thought, yeah, I've read that chapter. Um, <laughs> He'll but, wing it. <laughs> but, but so basically, the idea is you have a nice, flat, good runway, and you build up speed. You lift it off the ground about two feet, so there's less resistance. You've got a ground effect. You come, you come towards the obstacle, and you fly over like that, and then yes. Yeah. But we were starting in a slight look. We were trampling down elephant grass yep. at the back of the field, yep. right, to to make sure we could do it, right. So then it's slightly uphill like that. Then there's a dip like that, and oh. then it falls away. And the grass is level the whole way. Yeah, and it's <laughs> and it's uh, an 800 meter strip. I tried everything. You know, I do you know what my main concern was? I didn't want to upset this young pilot and get him doubting himself so that he crashed. Right. I, you know, and I kept saying to him, "Look, I mean, you could take two of us, you know, two or three of us to Inyanga, come back and pick us up. Big long strip there." And no, 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 no. It's all right. It's okay. I've done this before. You know, it's okay. I knew we were going to crash, and yet, I, and yet, I allowed myself oh. and the other people in it to go along because I didn't want to upset the pilot. Is there a brain in there? It's a common thing. It's a common way of thinking. I'm taking photographs uh, of the takeoff, you know, the speed and things like that. Yeah. Then I put the camera down because I don't want to be wearing it, you know, uh, yeah. there, like one of eight or one of whatever her name is. We pull off the ground. We start clipping the top tops of trees. We are bleeding speed. And I can see it's going to become very agricultural. <laughs> and, uh, and what's really interesting, and you, you as a soldier will, will, will know this, and you, you Hollywood, as a, as a pilot, will know that thing where you really know that you're probably going to die. And, and it's a question that every man asks himself. How will I behave like yeah, that? Yeah. You know, will I be going, oh, God, God, no! Yep. For me, it wasn't that. It was, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dumbass. What a stupid, stupid way to die. And it was, it was like a physical blanket, a wet blanket of depression that went over me. And, you know, I thought, oh, shit, it's over. Anyway, he banged it on the ground and didn't turn it over. And for a millisecond, I thought we could get away with it. And then I saw the tree. And the tree came into the cockpit at about 70 miles an hour. Oh, my God. Hit him so hard uh, that it's, it snapped his, his seat off the railing. Now, I'm, it's a low-wing piper like that. Mm -hmm. So the wing's coming in here. Yep. And here is the first position for the people behind the pilot. I was sitting right behind him. So his seat comes back and acts like a guillotine. And I look down and think, oh, shit, I've lost my leg. I bang my elbow here. I haven't broken it, yep. but I've hit it on one of those very odd places. Yep. It's numb. My arm yep. is numb. Yep, I've been there. I've got a, I've got a hernia that's, that's come here because my seat back is broken. You know, and I'm telling them, oh, get out, get out, get out. <laughs> and uh, they're getting out, and I'm trying to push his seat and him onto the tree in a vague belief that I can push the plane back. Uh, I couldn't do it. 
and you can smell the gasoline. Oh, no. Yeah. And you know how this is going to end, and you're thinking, oh. And it was one of the most extraordinary moments of my life, an absolutely life-changing moment. I thought, and they're going to tell your sons that you died screaming as the plane was on fire. And in just literally, I don't know, I don't know how, how to explain it, but it was literally just a millisecond of thought. I went from, that's not going to happen. I will not let my sons know that I died screaming. If it goes up, I'll make one last effort to get out, even if I have to pull the leg off. But I don't think I can because I'm already weak from shock. And if, if, I, if it goes up and I can't get out, I'm going to stick my head in the fire and, and inhale, inhale the fire as much as I can, get it over with quickly. I mean, what sort of, mm. what sort of savage atavistic part of oneself does one tap like that? I mean, you, but you, are, you would understand that, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary. And two minutes later, well, I'm going to tell the rest of the story, but you can't print this. Well, you can't. Um, <laughs> anyway, so two minutes later, it hasn't caught fire, and gingerly they come in and make sure the mast is off, and, uh, and it was. That probably saved it. And they, they haul the pilot out, and he's screaming. Big boy, six foot two, went into hospital weighing 220 pounds, I think came out weighing 84. Kidney damage, liver damage fractured pelvis, three operations to connect his bladder to his John Thomas, uh, mangled. And I've been pushing him on the tree, which I, I don't care. He's son of a bitch has just tried to kill me. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, and uh, once they get him out, they can push the seat forward and I hop out of the plane. I hop out of the plane. That's why I wear these, these compression stockings. Uh-huh. I hop out of the plane, and everything from there is hanging down. It's just the meat it's at the broke, back. Broken. It's the meat at the back yep. that's holding the leg together. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the leg is hanging down there. So I hop out of the plane. I did say a few rude words, some words that we could not repeat to a good Christian audience. <laughs> I managed to get 60, 80, 100 yards away, and then everyone goes back to the little hotel where we just had lunch to try and you know, find some means of transport and get a, get someone to come and attend to us. And I'm lying there, this American girlfriend of mine. Now, the, the women, just close your ears to this. You know. <laughs> the men will love this. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm lying there thinking, I'm, this is Africa. There isn't a hospital within eight or nine hours, I would think. I've already got dirt in it. I'm going to lose the leg. And I've got this wonderful American girlfriend, and she's going, oh, my God, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. We survived a plane crash. It's wonderful, wonderful. And I am so proud of this. I did say to her, look, sweetheart, um, uh, I'm going to be in hospital and out of commission for a few months now. But I wonder if we could have a quick, <laughs> just before, we, before they come back. You know? <laughs> and uh, alas, she said no, but... <laughs> When you, when, you t when, you t when you say to men, they go, yeah. <laughs> when you say to women, they go, oh, God, no. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. 
Uh, but so, but it, it, it changed my life in this way. I don't care who you are, how qualified you are, how much of an authority in the field you are. If you try to persuade me from something and you go through it from A to B to C to D and E, I will listen to you. And if there's a disconnect somewhere that I don't understand, I will say, I'm sorry, say that again, will you? No, I'm sorry, I'm, say that again. No, I, look, I, 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 I get A to B and I get C to D, but how do you get from B to C? Uh, hmm. No, I'm sorry, it's probably because I'm very thick, but I don't understand. And if after the sixth or seventh attempt, yeah. you can't do that for me, I know you're bullshitting me. <laughs> and I don't, uh, I don't care about appearing to be a fool. And I don't care about embarrassing everyone in the room as they think, God, Christ, does he know who he's talking to? I mean, oh, yeah. and it has saved me legally and medically sometimes. Mm -hmm. When somebody, somebody who's an authority and you listen to them and you say, that's not quite what I want. What is the answer to this? Well, of course, if we look into this, there is no... No, 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 forgive me, forgive me. That's the point that I'm looking for. So, you know, I, I have a number of friends that have done very heroic things or have been, you know, very badly injured. So I have Medal of Honor recipient friends, Purple Heart friends, behind closed doors, not in the public, but when you start saying, what, what really happened, they'll tell you that the leadership had a terrible plan, that sergeants asked or lieutenants asked, like, hey, this doesn't make sense. And essentially, they were told, well, this is what we have to do, deal with it kind of thing, instead of pumping the brakes. And they were placed in a position where they had to be heroic, yes. where, where everything was up against them, where planning and actual, a little less ego would have put them in a different circumstance. And I think it's a very common thing everywhere is, yes. We, when people that have either power or experience say something, even if we don't like it, we are worried about being embarrassed. And we use hope as a plan, which hope is always a terrible plan. And you brought up earlier that, you know, you have, uh, you don't know why you did that. But there's, the, uh, there's a, a movie, I'm sure you've seen it or at least heard of it, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Oh, yes. And... You know, in the first uh, episode of that series, you know, there's a serial killer that essentially talks about how every victim had a bad feeling about him right before the moment where they were captured, but didn't want to insult. And there, you know, the idea of not fitting in or, or being rude is really compelling force and I, I think um, it's definitely something that I used to wrestle with I don't as much anymore yes, not I, because I ever want to be mean to anyone but just no well it's, it's, it's our desire not to be mean to people mm -hmm. and, but we mustn't allow it to overwhelm our judgment mm -hmm. there's a wonderful line of T.S. Eliot's that I try to live by that we all engage in quote the common pursuit of true judgment, unquote. And that is the hardest journey that we can make, the hardest, the hardest obligation that we have, you know, because 
because our judgment is never really absolutely square on. It's a little bit square, or sometimes it's completely off. Mm -hmm. And just training ourselves to find, to find that regular ability to see, to see it as it really is, to see it not as we wish it was or wanted it to be or, or hope it is, just to see it as it is. And, uh, and I, th I find that the, the one touchstone that I try to live my life by, uh, and I, 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 I forget it and fail all the time with it, common pursuit of true judgment. And that certainly taught me a little bit about judgment. <laughs> Plane crashes tend to do that to a man, I've heard. They I've concentrate heard. the mind wonderfully, yes. <laughs> Do you remember your words right before the crash? <laughs> I wish I'd said something memorable like that famous Irish courting line, isn't it? You know, brace yourself, Bridget. <laughs> no, I, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. No, I was just, I was just quiet. I, I, I'd done all the talking beforehand, mm -hmm. and literally, I was taking photographs of the of the of, of the take up as we were gathering speed. And then I put the phone, the camera down because I knew we were going to crash. Yeah. How did I allow us to get into that situation? Yeah. You, uh, you know, just this conversation and then the, the tons of stories that I've heard from Hollywood, you know, you've lived a, an amazing life with a lot of adventures. When you think about your biggest adventure, what has it been thus far? And you're not allowed to say something like, you know, raising children. <laughs> I had a phone call from my then nearly 21-year-old son. Uh, Dad, Mum says I've got to get your permission. Uh, I want to go to Europe and take photographs. Well, that sounds wonderful, son. Um, now, uh, you want to talk more about it? No, not really. Um, anyway, can I have your permission? I said, yes, yeah, sure. Go to the south of France. Uh, take photographs of beautiful girls. Have a wonderful time. Oh, one rule. Once a week, you call your mum or me, that was a mistake, or put pen to paper. Okay? Oh, and by the way, where exactly are you going? Uh, do you want to tell me that? Uh, not really. Okay, boy, go and have a good time. What he doesn't tell me is that he wants to be a war photographer. <laughs> and he is going oh. to Yugoslavia. Uh -huh. We've been, we were filming in Yugoslavia 18 months before, and you could see it was falling apart. Yep. Uh, and, but he'd been there, yep. and he wanted to get, he wanted to be, decided he was going to be a great war photographer. Uh -huh. so. um, and of course, he may indeed have phoned his mother, but I neglected to tell you that his mother was a, fairly well on the road to dementia and so she was forgetting things gotcha. and didn't understand things. Mm -hmm. A month goes by, two months go by and I'm, I've just got my, I'm just feeling uncomfortable. I'd had a fairly personal tragedy happen the previous Christmas anyway and not going to that. But I had this, I just felt uncomfortable and I kept saying this to my friends and I'm worried about this boy, I haven't heard from him. And I, I just, just got a feeling there's something wrong. 
And they were all saying, come on, he's 21. Do you want your father around chasing you up when you're 21? Mm -hmm. Just think of the things you got up to. And I'm thinking of the things that I got up to. And no, I wouldn't have appreciated my dad being there at all. Um, and in the end, I went over and to England for Christmas. And he wasn't back. And my wife said that he had come back, developed some film, and then gone back. And I, I, I think, Johnny, he's, I think he's gone to Croatia or someplace like that. And I thought, oh, no. So guess where Dad spent Christmas that year? I'm trying everything. I cannot find this boy. But the more I, I got helped by a papal knight uh, who was, he was a knight uh, sent by the Pope um, to coordinate refugees, uh, refugee relief. In, in Croatia and he befriended me and he said look I've got lots of contacts we'll 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 put a lookout for him and he called me down one night and uh, he said there's an item being repeated on the news I think you should see it it was a, a bulletin about an English volunteer uh, who had been who had been shot while volunteering they didn't have any any further details and a few days later he found a guy who had been shot himself, who had some news about this English volunteer. And I met the guy and he said, look, we were fighting alongside a group called the, uh, the International Brigade, shades of Spain, 1936, 37. Mm -hmm. Their unit was advancing. We were advancing side by side with them. We came to this open ground and there's just snow on the ground. And we were trying to get to the next collection of trees and so they sent out the newest member of the unit to see that if there were any snipers around. And of course, you know, it's standard Soviet doctrine. You hit him, you don't kill him, you wound him. Mm. So he's screaming there. Mm -hmm. So his mates come out and try and reckon, then you can get two or three others as well. And after three or four hours, if they haven't come, you put another one and keep him starting screaming till he dies. This has happened to this boy. and and. He said, I don't know his name, but it was very short English name. Um, beginning T. And my son is called Tom. Mm. Try and think of how many names in English begin with T that are short. Tim. Tom. Ted. Ted. There's not, yeah. Not too many. Yeah. And uh, I'm... I'm I'm going up the wall. I'm sure. Christmas Eve comes. And I have got stinking drunk. Bestially drunk. I am going to lose a son. I am not doing A, anything. I'm staying at the hotel, the Hilton in Zagreb, where I know we have stayed before, where I think, you know, at least if he turns up, he will come to that hotel. And I've just put feelers out. I get bestially drunk. You know... I do. <laughs> you, know, you know that when you're sort of, you're sweating alcohol, you stink even to yourself. And I wake up in the morning, it's Christmas Day, and I know that if I don't find him, I'm going to lose him. So I go out of the hotel, and I flag down a guy in a Mercedes. And now, you have to understand, 
if you had a hundred thousand pounds a year before in your bank account and you were intending to buy a house, you know, you might have indeed enough money to buy quite a nice house. When you've got inflation at three to six percent a day, by the end of the year, you can't even take your family out to dinner with that hundred thousand pounds. That's right. And so they were they were all volunteering for anything for American dollars. So I flagged down this driver and say, look, $500 if you take me down to Vukovar, uh, because I, I just had a hunch he would be down there. And, um, and if I can find my son down there, another $500 if you take us to Klagenfurt. A thousand American oh, yeah. dollars. I understand. He could keep his family for six months yep. on that. Yep. The poor guy just had a night shift, but he was doing. He was going to do this. Of anyway. course he was. Yeah. And every time we go down, to past a patrol point or something like that, there'd be twenty bucks out of the window. Twenty bucks out of the window. We're going on and on. And I'm sitting in the back, bestially drunk and savagely drunk, and you know, you know that mean mm. drunk. Yeah. Anyway, we're going on now, and we come, we come over a little crest of the hill and come down. Now, there is no road by this time because tanks have chewed everything yep. up. There's snow and mud mm-hmm. and, and sort of 20 or 30 different yep. attempts at finding, to getting across this somewhat open plain. So we go down there gingerly, gingerly and he's driving, and there's a... Are there mines at this point? I don't know. <laughs> He's too drunk to care. But there's, but there's a, but there's a boom. and about quarter of a mile away, pile of smoke goes up, and he's frantic there. And then there's a poof over there, and I slowly realize we're being bracketed by mortar fire, badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's frantically trying to turn the car around, but the drunk in the back is mad at the world. Go on, you fucking coward! Go on! I'm going to reach forward. I take the keys out of the car. I wander down the window and throw the keys out of there. We're going on! At which point the poor fellow bursts into tears. And it's like a bucket of cold water going over me. And I think, you miserable old bastard. Because you're mad at the world, you're going to try and get this poor fellow killed. Cut to two men scrambling in the snow to try and find the damn keys. We get the keys, we get back and look up. <laughs> and uh, he takes me back, and I'm in the hotel, and I'm almost suicidal. And uh, the phone goes, and it's Tom. And I say, Tom, how are you? Oh, pretty good, Dad. Why are you here? I said, how did you know I was here? Uh, well, I, I called home to wish Mum uh, Christmas, uh, Merry Christmas, and uh, she said you were there looking for me. Um, and uh, uh, I can't come back with you, you know? And I said, why is that? Um, he said, oh, well, I, I can't leave until, I think it was January the 6th. I said, January the 6th, that's when the... EU recognizes the independence of Croatia. Uh, yes, yes. So you've become 
uh, involved in the Croatian cause? Uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in a paramilitary sort of way? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you become a mercenary. Son, I, I can't say that that fills me with delight. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just come over here to wish you a Merry Christmas, bring you a Christmas present. Um, and, um, but, you know, I, I, was, I, was, I was 21 myself once. I, I was outside the Israeli embassy when the seven-day, six-day war happened, uh, volunteering, and I'm not even Jewish. And uh, um, so, yeah... Um, so, he said, it's very good of you, Dad. Um, <laughs> um, so, when are you going back? And they said, oh, I don't know, Tom. Um, you know what, I, I've, I've been talking to people around here, and, uh, and I'm just thinking, I'm getting older, and I haven't had a real adventure for some time. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, I thought I might, you know, it's a good cause you're in. Obviously, I'm not going to come and join your yeah, your lot and embarrass you, but so I, I said I I've been asked if I'd go down to Bukovar. Um, Dad, are you insane? You know, th look, there's a really bad scene there. I mean, you you you. you, you. I said, wait 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 wait. Where did where did this where did this conversation go wrong? I've just told you that I can't tell you what to do with your life, and you're suddenly telling me what to do with my dad. Listen to me, of all the stupid things you've ever done, this is the most <laughs> stupid of all. And I said, well, you know, um, I respect your view. Um, uh, look, I'll tell you what, um, I, I, I can't talk much longer now because this guy at the door wants to talk to me about uh, this other place. And he said, whatever you do, don't go there, sort of thing, you know. And I said, no, I know, but he's been waiting outside. I've just kept him waiting because, because the phone went and it was you. Uh, but look, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to do anything without consulting you. I mean, you being close up to the elephant, and, and, and you know where the lie of the land, and I would be foolish not to listen to you. Uh, anyway, look, uh, tell you what, call me tomorrow night and we'll talk about it, but I have to go now uh, and, and talk to this guy. Dad, whatever you do, do not go and do anything. I'll talk to you tomorrow night. Okay, boy, lovely, happy Christmas. <laughs> Now, he hasn't told me where he is, and he won't tell me where he is. I put the phone down, <laughs> and I think, if he doesn't call back, what? Yeah. One day when you see that Oscar in my hand, and you'll see that, <laughs> you'll see that smile on my face, you'll know that I'm thinking of a different performance that really mattered. <laughs> the next day, he didn't call. He didn't call. He didn't show up. Oh, okay. And I know that I failed. And I'm sitting in this whole hotel room then, the whole of the next day, and the phone goes. Uh, Dan, I'm sorry I couldn't call yesterday, but you know, um, the day after Christmas is really the important celebration day for, for the Croats. It's their present giving day, and, and, and the phone just wasn't available anyway. So um, I'm glad to hear that you haven't, you haven't seen that you, you haven't gone down to Hukovar or someplace like that. And I said, look, Tom, um, I, I've been doing some due diligence on this and uh, and you are right this is a really bad scene thing is I told your mum that I wouldn't come back without you now I can't drag you home 
Um, and I can't just sit around in a hotel room doing nothing. Uh, I do have to do something. Um, and I've got a very bad feeling about it. It's, you know, you are right. This is a very bad scene. And we talked for a bit, and then I said, look, is there any chance that you and I could say we won the war and go home? And there was the longest pause you've ever heard. And then, okay. And the next day he came up to me in Zagreb. My Bob Dylan haircut was now sort of a US crew cut. Yep. He was a bundle of nerves. I, I hired a car and we went straight to Klagenfurt and got back to London. What I think happened was this. I mean, I gather what happened with this. He went to his commanding officer and said, uh, look, my father's turned up. It's not that he's dragging me home or anything, but he's got so enthusiastic about the war that he's going to join up. And he's old and he's fat and he's stupid and he's going to, he's going to get himself killed. And I can't let my father get himself killed. And his commanding officer, of whom more in a minute, probably said to him, fine, you can go. And according to Tom, his friend Robert, who was from Switzerland, said, can I go too? And uh, commanding officer said, no. Going to take us a day or two to replace Davis. You'll stay uh, until he's got a replacement. Tom and I got back to London. And on New Year's Day, or the day after New Year's Day, the Telegraph printed a report that a Swiss citizen had been shot, mm. a volunteer, mm. and it was his friend. Wow. And there is a suspicion that he was shot by a Roberto. Now, who is Roberto? Roberto is Spanish. Uh, Tom has met him because they had, they had been involved in this action that Ted, the man called Ted, had been part of that group. And Ted had been sent out and died in the snow. In the action, there were 24 or 25 of them. They'd had five killed and six wounded. They were regrouping in Zagreb when Tom happened to meet them up, meet up with them. Mm. And Roberto said, come on, you, you want to be a photographer? Join us. You know, you will see action close to the face. Half a day's training with an AK-47. Mm. And he's in a trench waiting for T-34s to move against them. <laughs> uh, God looks after the young and the stupid. Um, Roberto had his suspicions about Robert, uh, the Swiss guy, mm -hmm. because he'd said that he'd first of all gone to fight, he'd gone to Serbia to see what, what the Serbs were up to, and then he decided they were on the wrong side. And he decided to change, to, to come over. And, and, and Roberto decided um, that he could be a spy. And there is a real possibility that he shot wow. this kid. Wow. Now, what of Roberto? Well, he was in Argentina building a bomb to go into a, to be used against a synagogue when the Argentine Special Forces came in. Uh, 
and killed him. Mm. Um, he was actually a personal friend of the jackal, Carlos wow, the wow, jackal. Wow. <laughs> there were like 14 levels to every story. Yeah. Every story. <laughs> but if you, if you want to know the level of my courage, think of me groveling around in the snow trying to find the... <laughs> well, mortars are scary. Mortars are I wasn't scared. Oh, okay. Oh, come on, I'll you know bring it on. <laughs> you know, I'm so drunk I can take anything. You know, uh, but um, but the sight of that guy, literally tears pouring from his eyes. Yep, tears of exhaustion, probably partly. It sobered me up enough to think. Yeah, you're mad. You're mad, drunk, yeah. and angry, and you're going to get. You're going to ruin a family. By getting this boy killed, this lad killed. Anyway. It was a tough. That was a tough war. That was a tough. All war. wars are tough, but civil wars. Are civil the worst. wars are the worst. Yep. I served in Yugoslavia. I served in the Kosovo uh, portion of it, and I, what you described was not uncommon. Yeah. You know what they were willing to do to each other. Yeah. You you can pick any side. At various times in history. We're all bastards. Every one of them would sooner bane at a baby if it was of the wrong persuasion yep. than, than look after mm -hmm. it. Every one of them. Mm -hmm. And bringing them into the fold of civilization is going to be a longer, a longer process than we imagine, but it can be done. Don't forget, 2,000 years ago, my people were cannibals as well. <laughs> and we certainly committed ritual murder. We certainly sent some of our finest young princes to the gods to intercede to give us some strength and ability to resist yeah. the Romans. I mean, every civilization, yeah. every single one has done horrific things. Yep. I mean, there's no, there's no exception to it. And we're only that far. It's Always. only that skin deep. Always. Always yeah. this close to the every, beast. The beast every, is there. Yeah. 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 When I, 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 I lost a dear friend last week, Heim Topol, you know, Fiddler on the Roof. Mm -hmm. Fiddler, uh, Haim and I shared a trailer when we were doing War and Remembrance, which we were shooting for two months in winter in Auschwitz yeah. itself. And that was, uh, I think that was the only film at the time that had been filmed there. Is That's that right. correct? It was the first. So we are leaving our, our, our hotels with our thermal underwear under our prison uniforms and driving in our chauffeur-driven Mercedes through the gate, Ardbeit, Mark, mm -hmm. Fry, and there are two million ghosts looking at us. Mm. Uh, we obviously, when men are sharing that sort of experience, it is an occasion for some introspection. For Heim, it was, I never understood why they didn't fight back. Why didn't they fight back? Well, because when you're herding people along, all you're doing is giving them hope. When we get there, you'll have a shower, you'll get food. Just behave orderly. People will choose hope over realism mm. at any time. And he said, he came in one day and he said, John, we've, I've just learned something. He said, we've just done that scene where the Russian soldiers are unladen, uh, get, get off the, the, the train. And all, all the uh, all the helpers are there under the with the with the with the with the officers around, beating us 
to, to, to drive us into where they got. And the state, the, the, what they were using was a piece of wood or a piece of wire with padding around it, neither, so it looked like a stick. But he said, you know, all that constant, you, you know, you were doing that. They could have led me anywhere, he said. They could have led me straight into a gas chamber. And I'd never understood that before. But for me, obviously, as a non-Jew looking at this, at this place, the question I have to, well, there, there's a number of questions. One, how would I have behaved mm. like that? But the awful other ugly question is there anything in me that could have made me one of the guards? Mm -hmm. That's the that's the nightmare question. I don't think that I have the courage to resist much. If they said, if they said, John, you will do this, or we will kill your daughter or abuse your daughter. Mm -hmm. Would I have the ability, as some people do, to say, I'm, not, I'm telling you nothing, I'm giving you nothing? You know, if they showed me the instruments of torture, would I, I, I think I, I really think I'd be inclined to say, look, let's be reasonable about that. So what do you want to know? <laughs> um, but I guess, I guess the real heroes never know it until that's the time. And then they do it as much out of bloody mindedness as anything. There are real heroes around. And, uh, and we do not understand how much we owe to the common hero. You know. I mean, those kids in 1944 who are trying to, to resist saying that Hitler must go. They're in Germany. They're doing it. They're writing uh, Heidelberg University, isn't it? I can't remember. The last of the survivors... I think you're right. ...died at the age of 101 last week. You know, what? They must know what's going to happen to them. And yet they do it mm. because it's right. Mankind is not just capable of the most bestial savagery, there are, there are moral giants living amongst us that we never know. You know men, men, of, and men and children, girls, boys, with just an absolute moral courage that transcends, well, death itself, really. It's wonderful. I meet some of these people in, at fan conventions and, you know, my God, you, you meet them and you, uh, and they don't tell you the full story, but because you know the history and the context, mm -hmm. you, can, you can extrapolate. I was on a uh, train on my way from uh, Köln to, uh, to Frankfurt to catch a flight back home. It's a packed train and this old woman got on the train and uh, in Germany, it's less, uh, young people are less apt to give up seats than, than say, uh, you would expect in the States or, or maybe in England. And, uh, you know, I got up and I gave this older woman my seat. 
And, you know, she thanked me, but I could tell that she, she wasn't German. She spoke German, but it wasn't her, her natural language. And uh, long story short, she had been in a concentration camp, and she had just been speaking in Cologne, you know, to the university, you know, because Germany invests a lot of money in making sure that yes. everybody knows their history. And yes. so we had this... Um, we had this amazing conversation that was in, you know, kind of some English, some German, um, and she had been in a situation where a uh, they were basically kind of counting, and you know they would shoot whoever landed on the number, like if it was seven, or they'd pick a different number and yes. start counting. And, um, her father. The, the number that they landed on was her father. And this priest pushed him aside and stood in his place and got shot. And she, um, and, uh, you know, I was like, you know, oh, my God. And she was like, that, that moment just reminded me that no matter how bad things were, there was always someone there that was good and an example and was willing to help. And that is the lesson that she tries to hold on to. You know, I'm sure she's passed since this was this was late late this was late 2000. Mm -hmm. I was back there visiting. Yep, some people have moral courage, mm -hmm. and and uh, and I suppose they are the bearers the bearers of light and civilization. Um, I always like to tease my my Irish friends. We've just had St. Patrick's Day, as you know. I said, I say, you do realize that St. Patrick was a Welshman. <laughs> Patrick's life is very interesting because he, he, he's captured as a slave. He's obviously living on the coast of Wales or perhaps further north. We don't know exactly. He's a Romanized Celt, and he's captured by pirates and taken there and treated abominably, ab ab abominably. He is a Christian, but not a particularly, you know, keen Christian. Sure, sure. And he's 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 the only person he's sent to look after this herd of, of sheep. And he literally months and months and months he's on his own, and, you know, he finds his faith. He ends up escaping, and going back home, and and you know that I mean it's probably post traumatic stress that he's suffering from. He cannot really settle back at home. And he decides that he will go back and try and Christianize the thing. Well, he was, he's under death sentence as a, re as a, re as a cap recaptured slave. Hmm. And the life is extraordinary. It's, it's, it's a Dark Ages autobiography, unique in character. Hmm. He's a great maverick. But undoubtedly, un undoubtedly capable of extraordinary bravery. I mean, the last thing you'd want to do if you had a horrifying experience like is, that is, is go, go back, back to it. Yeah, yeah, that takes something different. Yeah, it's thank it's God there are people like that. Thank God there are people who will take that that place in the decimation. Mm. Very Roman thing, of course. <laughs> And actually, to this day, still bothers me when people say decimate and they don't realize that it actually is a reduction by 10%. Obviously, if you That's look right. at the mm -hmm. 
etymology of the word, but they take it to mean total destruction, which it is not. Yes, I know indeed. that's a yes, really pedantic thing, but it, <laughs> but, it was a, but it was often a punishment in the Roman art. That's right. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. You know, if the tenth you, man, yep. you would have to kill that tenth man, your, the guy standing next to you, your buddy. Mm -hmm. You would kill him. And now it's time for the Warrior Rising Veteran Entrepreneur of the Week. Warrior Rising is the preeminent veteran entrepreneurship charity in the galaxy. Warrior Rising provides education, mentorship, grants, and more to veteran entrepreneurs. No one helps build more successful veterans than Warrior Rising. Each week, Warrior Rising selects one veteranpreneur to feature in our program. Here's this week's. Who's the bravest person you can think of? Captain America? Rambo? One of those assassins hunting John Wick that somehow thinks this time they're going to be the one that is actually going to come out on top? Wrong. It's your teddy bear. While you sleep, your teddy bear stands vigilant, keeping a watchful eye out for monsters, spiders, and anything else that dares go bump in the night. But brave knights aren't just any teddy bear. They're the chosen few. The most elite. The bears that found just being a normal teddy bear unbearable. Armed to the teeth with sword and shield, they will protect and serve you and your loved ones every single day and night. No monster will dare creep over the edge of your child's bed with brave knights at the ready. So join the magical order of the brave knight. Visit magicalorderofbravenight.com. That's magicalorderofbravenight.com. I, I tell you about my comic book. You did not tell me about your comic uh. book. This is the longest damned interview. <laughs> well, if you, I'm, I'm, just, if, I'm amazed by your prostrate, John. It, I'm just like, <laughs> eight years old, man. I mean, if you stop, if you would stop. But being, fully functional without <laughs> chemical assistance. <laughs> um, that's part of a private joke that we've had today. <laughs> Yeah, a couple of years ago, well, a year and a half, a year ago, a couple of lads approached me and said, John, we would like to make a comic book of your life. And I said, no, we're not. <laughs> I said, but, but I'll tell you what, we could make a comic book of the imaginative lives of some of my characters. In fact, I agree we could make a, a number of them if you wanted. So I wrote the story for the first one. I can give you a bit of the story. I'd love it. J.R.D., the actor, is at a fan convention. And suddenly someone is pushing through the crowd, and he's, he, he's disheveled, and he's got a mad look in his face. You know, is it the lunatic that's coming to kill him? He grabs his hand and puts something into it. And he says, you must find it. You must find them, or you will lose your life, and disappears again. Audience very upset. J.R.D. stands up and says, look, I'm terribly sorry about that, but there's no need to be alarmed. I mean, unfortunately, um, sometimes people imagine that I am something more than an actor. Um, uh, I, I'm John Rhys-Davis, actor. I am not John Reese davis uh, Professor Max Arturo traveling through dimensions to worlds in different dimensions. <laughs> I, am, I am really not 
Gimli the dwarf, <laughs> other than I am a very grumpy fellow sometimes. And I am certainly not Salah, the ability, the, the, the man who found the Holy Grail and the, um, the and the Ark of the Covenant. I'm now going to sit down. Um, oh, no. Gotcha. Oh, look, this man has given me a ring. A very interesting ring because this is a Roman legionary ring. Uh, nine Hispaniae. This is the, the great famous ninth legion that gets lost, the lost legion. And nobody knows quite happen, what happened to it. Well, I'm, I'm afraid he's going to be disappointed because I have no idea how to, uh, how to find it. He sits down, his chair slips, and he falls off. And suddenly, he finds himself sitting on a tree with three other Roman officers taking a crap while a legion, evidently the Ninth Legion, is looking on. And there's the, the, old, the, the, the old sponge on the stick being dipped in the river and passed on, you know, <laughs> to do your business, and a slave takes it off you. He gets up and people say, are you, are you all right? God, you behaved, being, you fell off your horse last week and you haven't been right since. You, you, are you all right in the head today? And he, he, he wanders to join the troop as they're moving out. And people are saying, hey, what are you doing there? Get on your bloody horse, you silly fool. And he gets on the horse and uh, he says to one of the guys, he says, where are we going? Your wits really are scrambled, aren't you? Listen, uh, um, Apius or something like this. Um, we're going to, and they give the, the Roman name for Colchester. That little bitch, Boduca, has rebelled against the... Uh, oh, interesting. Uh, has rebelled, rebelled, rebelled against Rome. And, you know, she's creating mayhem. We're going there and we're going we're gonna to sort her out. Well, she had some grounds on her part. I mean, after all, we, you, we uh, did, you know, beat her and rape her daughters. Ah, oh, come on, for God's sake. I mean, what's the, if you, if, you, if you can't have a bit of fun when you're an occupying army, what the hell's it all about? You know, of course we're allowed to do a bit of rape and pillage. And slowly, his his, the history is coming back in his mind. And he thinks, I'm not going to be part of this. Shoot, I know what happens here. And then the surprise attack happens, and they overwhelm. They're overwhelmed. The Ninth Legion was overwhelmed. And a small part of the cavalry and a few footmen got away. So he, he wheeled it. As soon as the attack happens, he, you know, he says, any of you who want to live, follow me. And they go off. And he's riding back away from this melee, and he doesn't notice it, but there's a tree right ahead which hits him in the head. And he wakes up, and he's back at the, the fan convention, mm. and people are saying, you all right? And he's looking around and thinking, and, uh, and somebody is saying, you know, we've got to take you to the doctor. And, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. No, no, got to take you to the doctor. No, no, not until I finish what I'm doing. The show goes on. And then he goes to the doctor, and they do an x-ray. But so we're now putting the, the suggestion there 
that perhaps he has got some sort of brain injury, or perhaps it's a tumor. I mean, are these real events real? Yeah. Or are they not? Yeah. And then he's waking up at night and there's a man in his room. And uh, and the man says, so did you enjoy your first time? I want to emphasize what that idiot told you. You find them, I find what happens to the Ninth Legion, or I'll leave you there. And, um, and he's saying, get out of my room. You're not real, get out of my, get out of my room. And the guy said, I, and I'm not going back anywhere. And the guy says, oh yes you are, uh, but right now you're going to sleep, aren't you? So in four, three, two, one. Anyway, the story goes on. Yeah, that's Anyways, very interesting. It's a lot of fun. That's but the very... history is all sound. Now, is this out already or you're working on it? No, it's, it should be out, I think, uh, in a few months' time. Awesome. What's it called? I don't even know we've got a title for it yet. Okay. But there you are. But it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Mm. All right. Um, as you said, this is this is a long one, but you've you've been interesting the entire time, so it's hard to... It's hard to divert, you know. Um, there's a film that you're putting together now. Yes. Do you want to tell us about that? Tell you a little bit about it. It's about your ancestor, our ancestors, the ancestors of everyone who has one relative who left Africa more than 60,000, 70,000 years ago. In truth, we are all related, all of us. Of on course. The, on the earth. Yep. Something happened around 60,000, 70,000 years ago when the, the total number of humans worldwide really crashed. And some say it could be as many as 10,000 survived. Others say it was less than that. It was 1,000. 100,000 years ago, at the start of the most recent Ice Age, there were at least five species of hominid. Us, Sapiens, Neanderthal, Denisovan, probably Heidelbergensis, Homo floriensis, and there seems to be a, a Melanesian a gene that we have, that doesn't exist anywhere else, part of a gene that doesn't exist in any other human group, but we have no physical evidence of, of the person that, or, or species that, that occupied it. By the end of the Ice Age, the Ice Age is really at its peak in Europe and North Africa, North America rather, um, about 22,000 years ago. By then, really, there's only one species of hominid left, uh, and that's us. Why? Because our smartest members, were able to find a food source somehow and live long enough to breed and pass their genes on. Effectively, we selected for intelligence. Mm. Now, that in itself is wonderful, but it has consequences. When you select for intelligence, you in select for a bigger brain, a bigger brain requires a bigger skull around it. The bigger skull has to pass through a birth canal. And what it was doing, it was 
killing, it killed women who couldn't pass that bigger brain. In the end, I suppose, there's a, another part of selection that's coming in. The babies that survived tended to be one, the ones that were probably a little bit premature, slightly smaller thing. Thus, we need to nurture a human, a, a human infant. That's really Because it's absolutely helpless. Mm. This is a generalization, but it's sort of generally true. Up until the end of the Stone Age, which is pretty recent in some part of the yep. world, you'll find Stone Age burials of men in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, sometimes even their 60s. You almost never find a woman over the age of 30. The life expectancy of a woman is, on average, 21 years. So it accounts for a lot of human behavior. You were 15. You loved her. She was 14. You mated. She actually survived the first birth. And at 17 or 18, she died in the second or third childbirth. You were 18, and you'd lost your first love. You were bringing up the children, or her sisters were bringing up the children. Mm. You were part of the male hunting group. After a year or two, you found another mate, another 14 or 15-year-old, which probably accounts for the fact that men tend to be attracted to younger women. And as I was writing it, I realized, I realized one simple thing. Why do men traditionally disparage the contribution, the intellectual contribution that a woman makes to a conversation or something like that? The answer is simple. We've had at least 100,000 years, possibly 40,000 generations of men who've met each other and have had to read each other's mind. I meet you. You've got a spear. I've got a spear. I look at you. I sort of thing. I have to make up my mind whether you're going to kill me and try and take my stuff or whether I have to kill you first. And then I suspect, and this is purely fantasy and conjecture, I suspect that the way we first relate to each other is we tell bad, dirty jokes. <laughs> I think, you know, you think your wife's ugly. My wife's so ugly that da 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 you know, that even the hyenas wouldn't take her. We've had 100,000 years or more of learning to try and read each other, you know, to, and, and we still can deceive each other. You know, we still don't, we, we still get taken in by con men. We've never actually had a chance at reading a woman's mind because it's only in the last 40 generations that we've, been, we've met women. We are the product of teenage girls who did whatever it took to make sure that this baby survives. Mm. Building on that, too, I mean, also, that would, you know, if the premise is accurate, that means that you have generations of people where the elders are mostly men because women are dying off so young. So, you know, wisdom comes with age and experience yeah, you know so, a, so a, now, a, a 17 year old boy says come on let's go out and kill mammoths 
you know, a 35-year-old man says, no, I tell you what, why don't we, why don't we try and corner a couple of horses? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Maybe know. we dig a pit, yeah. you know? Maybe yeah. we try to get it in the yeah, pit, in the, you know, Let's throw spears to... at it from up top. You know? <laughs> and and um, you don't expect wisdom from a 17-year-old boy or from a 17-year-old girl. Correct. You know, they're wonderful. They're in their own way. They're unique and, and wonderful and and glorious, but they never saw the glorious 17-year-old girl become the wise woman, mm. you know. You know, she was old if she was 25, 26. She was very old if she got to 30. It probably meant that she was infertile. Mm. Well, I'll tell you how the story begins. The book version of the story begins like this. When my first mate died, I left the clan and went to walk the world. One day, I came across the tracks of a giant, and he follows the slightly disabled track of the giant back to his cave, and 17-year-old murderous, feral youth waiting for the giant to appear so that he can attack him. And it's a long wait and then he can smell something cooking inside. He goes into the cave with his spear, the dumbest thing you can do. I mean, you've got a spearhead, you touch the side of the wall, you know, it doesn't work. But he goes in, he is attacked, but, but he manages to do that somehow. And for some reason, the giant falls over. He, kick, he runs to the fire, kicks it up, looks around to see if there are any other giants there. And there aren't. And the giant is lying on the ground groaning and he comes to finish the giant off and he sees in the Neanderthal's face a look of resignation. And he hesitates for a second and then he uses the tip of his spear to raise the clothing over his leg and he sees the gangrene and he knows that the giant is dying. And he looks at the giant, and the giant knows that he knows, etc. Again, he hesitates. And every time he hesitates, his life changes. He ends up looking after the dying giant. At one point, he, he's, the dying giant insists on him. <laughs> and they, they hobble along to a deep, distant part of the cave. And there, there is a mound where there is obviously a dead giant. And there is red ochre there. And, and, the, and the, the Neanderthal sort of pantomimes, me, you. The Neanderthals painted their dead faces with red ochre. And then, and he points to a stone, like the stone that is on the other piece there. And he picks it up and he puts it over his head. And that is the headstone that we use today. We got the idea of the headstone from Neanderthal. Wow. He leaves the cave, he looks around one last time, and there's been one thing, there's been one thing that has, that the Neanderthal have been most insistent about. It consists of a bit of broken wood with a tiny little bit of uh, a, a, a little bit of hide string on it. 
And the Neanderthal was so insistent that this was, this was the thing. And he's almost ready to leave it behind, but he picks it up and takes it with him. And he continues his journey, and he's playing with this damn stick that he doesn't know anything about. And he's, you know, he's putting a stone on it and, uh, and trying to do that. But he realizes that the longer your arm, the more leverage you have. Mm. So instead of this big spear that I can throw 20 yards, if I had a lighter spear and I had a stick at that end, how far could I throw that? And he invents the atlatl, the throwing spear. Wow. This, of course, is a technological revolution. He takes back to the clan Mm -hmm. and he unites the competing clans because with this, you know, their range has gone up to 80 yards, 60 yards. They can, they can hunt more can efficiently, hunt, yeah. so it's not, it's less competitive. And that's the start of the story. That's really interesting. It's an important film because it is, because these are not, uh, Mongo, take woman. Yeah. <laughs> these are, there is a real belief amongst some psychologists and some uh, archaeologists that actually they represent the, end, the tail end of the Ice Age represents Homo sapiens at its most intelligent. Oh, I, I agree with that. You know, I agree with that. There's, there's a lot of evidence that suggests, contrary to what we think, we think that we are intelligent because we're civilized. But actually, the crappier the situation, the more dire your situation, the less resources you have, the smarter you need to be to, to survive. And so actually... Um, the tests that they have done when they've removed knowledge from IQ tests, you know, yes. because we, we grow up with the luxury of this, yes. the more tribal a society, the more high intelligence individuals there are. Yes. Because, I mean, you, you literally die. Like, That's right. You know, if you're in a place where there is no medical care and you don't figure out how to not get bit by snakes, how to not get gored by, you know, like, you die. That's right. Um, and so I absolutely agree with that premise. These are, these are bright people. They spend half their 24 hours in darkness, illuminated by more stars than we have ever seen. Mm. And they're looking at the stars, they look at the sun and the moon, and they're thinking, what is, what is this? What is this about? What are they? There is a correlation between the Earth and the sun and the moon. When I stick a stick in the ground and the sun is directly ahead, it tells me that it is the middle of, middle of my day. The stick moves as the sun moves. And I can actually roughly tell where I am and what time it is mm-hmm. if I follow the sun. But... When I do the same in a full moon, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all. Why? What is the relation between the sun and the moon and the earth? I can count those days, and he does. I can count those. And I can see when the dawn comes up on my mountain, I can see it comes up in a different place each time. Then it stops and goes back. 
What is the relation between the sun, the moon, and the earth? The only thing that makes sense is the earth is moving around the sun, the moon is moving around us. But that can't be right. Because if the earth is moving, we would feel it. I can't feel the earth moving. Can you feel the earth moving now? We're moving at 22 and a half thousand miles an hour. Mm -hmm. When I run, I'm moving. I can feel the wind in my face. Why can't I feel? It doesn't make sense, so that must be wrong. So what other explanation is there? Uh, and they are, they are, these are thinking men and, and women, and they are bound together by one thing. If the clan is to survive, the children must, be, must survive. Mm -hmm. As the old man says to, to, to his great-grandson, no, you must stay behind. You cannot go join the hunt. You must stay behind and guard the women and the other children. Oh, can't. What is the first duty of a man? To protect the women and the children. You know, that's it. And what I'm hoping that the, the film should, should obviously entertain you, it should enthrall you, it should move you to tears, and it should move you, it, it, it should leave you feeling pretty happy, and pretty proud of being a human being. You will cheer at the end. We are here because of the sacrifices that they made. Absolutely. Don't screw it up. <laughs> yeah. You have no right to screw it up. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm enthralled and I'm very interested. I'm pumped. So no. whether whether that's in book form or movie form or both, I'm, yeah. I'm interested. I now have to go out. I nearly got my studio ready, uh, though that's changing as well because everything I knew about film is all up in the air now because there are virtual studios. That's right. And um, But it's now time to go out and shake the money tree and get the money to make this film. It's not an expensive film to make. It is not star-led. Mm. It is character-led. And story an actor's film yeah an actor's film but for those of us who uh, who think about thinking and think about thought it's a bit of a must actually but then it's a love story it's an action story it's about the courage of ordinary people because they were extraordinarily ordinary as well anyway enough 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 no more tis not so sweet now <laughs> as it was before <laughs> Before we go to our final segment, which is a rapid fire questions, is there anything that you wish I would have asked you that I have not asked you? I am so relieved that you did not ask me some of the questions. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything we need to know about this magnificent gentleman to my left that while I've made fun of him has had a profound effect on my life and I'm sure yours as He's well. He's a great buddy. He's a good man, great buddy, pretty sound value. Sound judgment. Mm -hmm. And in the end... I believe that uh, Aristotle had something to say about that. You give me your Aristotle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that to the professionals. I, I, I got interested in Aristotle because of the great Jefferson, the writer of your... Uh, it's your... What is the, the Declaration, Declaration of, of Independence. Independence. Forgive me, but Jefferson gets it wrong. 
he's talking about life, liberty, and he's quoting Locke. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to go to property because property involves slavery, but he needs something, life, liberty, he needs something else to finish off that sentence. And he comes up with this beautiful phrase, the pursuit of happiness. It's mellifluous, it's wonderful, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because you cannot find happiness if you pursue it. Happiness is not an object. Mm. Happiness, as Aristotle says, <laughs> is the byproduct of virtuous activity. Happiness is that end of the day thing when you've beaten your guts out and you go home and there's that little glow in you thinks, God, that was a great day. That's happiness. Uh, I agree. But it's not a destination. I agree. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I love Jefferson. I think he's great. No, I, I'm with you. Uh, and, and that a lot of people don't realize that he originally, the first draft originally did say property. Mm -hmm. But it had there were too many issues associated with it, and also, uh, you know, a number of the founders felt like it it didn't feel grand enough. No property, no property like that doesn't you know. No. And that also doesn't. Speak. Come on, we can't use this. Later on, Marx is going to say property is theft. Mm -hmm. we, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My mom, genealogist friends assure me that I am related to Madison. Um, somewhat distantly, but then we're all... Dolly? Fun. Dolly Madison? That's the one. <laughs> You're a food snack food. But they were all extraordinary men. They were. Brilliant. I mean, you're lucky enough to... You're lucky enough to have a, a founder, founding fathers who were probably a group of some of the smartest mm -hmm. men that have ever been together since Periclean Athens. They're, they're extraordinary. Yeah, they were. They were. And it's, I think that they are, they are not appreciated enough in modern society because people confuse having access to information with having invested time into thought. Mm. And, you know, Googling something and understanding something and then being able to understand it and apply it are three significantly different levels. Yes. And everybody kind of now thinks, well, if I have access to the information, then it's mine. Yeah. But that is yes. absolutely not true. Yes. I don't have to remember it. I can always look it up again. And I can always yeah. look it up again. You know, but if I need that, ex uh, that quotation for the, ex for, for, the, uh, for the exercise, I can, I can always look it up. I don't have to learn it. But it's the same thing as, uh, you know, I can, I can watch a video about how to swing a baseball bat I can, you know, read about how to swing a baseball bat, but none of that actually prepares me to swing a baseball bat. I have to swing that bat, and I have to have repetition. I have to, in order to be able to actually do the thing. That's right. You need to invest in it, and yeah. thought is the same way. And if you yes. don't, you end up screwing up a cricket bat. <laughs> and, and if you're if you're not, <laughs> you will ruin. You will almost kill your mother-in-law with a cricket bat. All right. Well, with that, we will now do. The that. Most, the, You're still recording this. Guy. We are still God. recording this, believe it or not. Now, this is the most incredible part, John. Okay. So, so this, so this is, is the this part. This is where he brings the rabbit. This is the part. 
It is. And yeah. then you have to skin it and, and prepare it for us. That's <laughs> the final live our <laughs> uh. So uh, the idea here, neither of us are good at this part. We have to, we have to do it quickly. So mm-hmm. it's, there's not a significant amount of explanation. It's just a quick answer. Yes. The first one I will not pull out of the hat. I ask everybody, what is the toughest animal that you think you could kill in hand-to-hand combat? Buffalo. All right. All right. That is a very large animal. All right, here we go. Here we go. What scene from a non-horror movie scared you as a child? No, I can't. I Nothing. Can't. You're just I impervious, impervious I, I, I to fear. I wasn't scared. I really first became scared when I held my firstborn child in my arm for the very first time. That was the time I knew real fear. <laughs> and I'd been lost in Africa. I'd been lost in the bush and... and Come pretty close to death on a couple of other occasions. Yeah, and there was a... Yes, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Three hours later. (laughs) Do you have a secret talent that no one knows about? Yes, I can crochet. How well? Like, really well? No. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a director that you haven't worked with that you'd like to work with? Del Toro. Uh, Oh, there are a number. Lerman, I would. Look, I like, I like working with new directors because they all have something to teach you. And, uh, and, and, and the good ones really are good for a reason. What mistakes did you make early in your career? Arrogance. I used to avoid the camera for, for press stuff. I, I, I used to absent myself for that. We've made up for that today, John. <laughs> Who would play you in a movie? <laughs> I remember somebody suggesting that I played Pavarotti once. I think Pavarotti should play me. <laughs> he would have had a more interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? I think probably worms. Um, but that was, I was very young at the time. It seemed like a good idea. <laughs> Which movie sequel would you like to erase from history? Careful. <laughs> I, I'm going to plead. I'm, I'm going to plead the plead plead the fifth. Yeah, uh, uh, I was only following orders. Um, uh, a sub question that has absolutely nothing to do with whatever you were going to say there. How was it uh, to reunite with Harrison Ford on the latest Indiana Jones film? It was a remarkable experience. Uh, it is, I think, it's a great script, great director, a great leading man at the height of his powers in probably his most famous part. I would be surprised if it wasn't a hit. Awesome. Very surprised. It, that's, that's, it's going to be a big one. That's phenomenal. I just mm. want you to know that I, I asked that question on behalf of Quigley's husband, <laughs> who we call McJosh, because we had two Joshes at the same time, so we go. weren't going to have two Joshes. So okay. You know, do you drive in the left lane? And if so, so this is, this is, we're not going to ask you this no, question. No. This, this question. That does not apply. This oh, question. I, 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 I was in New Zealand where we drive on the left-hand side and you guys drive on the right-hand side. And I, the first time I used to do this in Los Angeles, 
Um, I used to get some lovely, friendly sort of waves from people, sort of like that. <laughs> uh, and and I, I always used to sort of wave back at them until I realized that they were probably saying something somewhat le disparate. Le less kind. Yes. Less kind. Less kind. Uh, what is the one thing you wish could exist but doesn't at the moment? It doesn't at the moment, but it might be very soon. I think we're on, on the verge of really extending human life. Mm quite amazingly. I agree. And incidentally, that's really going to screw us up. It is. Because we won't take accidental death so easily there. I could, he could have been another, lived another thousand years, but you, you irresponsible bastard, yep. you killed him. And he was only 378. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you. The more uh, the more civilized a country becomes, the less we can deal with death. Yes, and the the longer we have the chance of living, the more cowardly we will become. That's absolutely true. If you had to swap lives with a character that you played, who would you choose? Not Salah. Salah's a great guy. Salah, I think, ends up like that marvelous man Walid Al Asadi who at the age of 80 is defending his museum in Palmyra when the, 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 uh, the Taliban come, it wasn't the Taliban, it was the whatever it is. ISIS. ISIS. And, um, and they, he's hidden all the treasures, as many treasures as he can. And they demand that he, they, he gives up the whereabouts of the treasures and he refuses. And they behead him in front of his museum. That is, I hope, the sort of man Salah would have become. Maximilian Arturo, well, I think he's stuck on a lonely planet somewhere trying to work out how to get back to Earth and how to get back in touch with the other sliders. Gimli the Dwarf, well, yes. Oh, by the way, I've just been asked, it may not happen actually, because there may be a copyright issue with the character but somebody has just there's a new game going to be called um, the Return to Moria and uh, it has been expressed that it might be nice to have Gimli back or the voice of Gimli back and I shall tell them <laughs> how I returned from leading the expedition to destroy the rings back to my own people and there to find no recognition no honor, there to find that the woman that I had gone to intended to marry had married another and had seven children in my absence. <laughs> and uh, to find that people were just saying, oh, nice to see you, where you've been, what's happening in the world. And it is I, Gimli Gloinson, the cousin of the greatest dwarf of all, that organized the people organized a few young bucks to come with me. And the dream and the vision is to rebuild Moria into its glory, to surpass its former glory. Now, of course, <laughs> when I propose this, people come along and laugh at me. And then I hit them. And then they begin to see a bit of selfs. <sighs> She's not much to look at, mind. She's not much to look at because 
There's some genetic failing in her. You see, real dwarf women have got these luscious big beards to go with their hair. And this one is, well, nobody fancies her, nobody wants her because she has no beard. I, one of the things that I've learned on the way is, is not to take people at, uh, you know, at, at first glance, not to make judgments too soon. And, uh, and I see in, in this young child, uh, She's not really a child, but she looks like a child because she hasn't got a beard. I see a wisdom and there's something in her. And more than that, she happens to believe in me, which is always uh, something that the old ego needs when you come back to your own people and they don't recognize the suffering and sacrifices you have made for them and for the world. Not that I'm in any way irascible or unreasonable, but I know what's right. And I'm damned if I'm going to be told what isn't. Anyway, the adventure would go there, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we can top the answer to that question. Um, you notice how I managed to avoid all those questions. <laughs> I, I failed every single one. Except the buffalo. The African buffalo. African buffalo, I think, is the most dangerous of the lot. I remember being out with Chuck Heston when we were in Kenya doing something. <laughs> Good old Chuck and, Heston. Good old Chuck Heston. He was a great um, hunter himself. You know, the, the problem with them is that if you shoot them and you don't kill them, then you're obliged to go after them. In, and in, a buffalo in thick bush is the most dangerous thing in all, a wounded buffalo, because he'll come up behind you. And all you'll hear is that snort as he makes that final gallop. Hmm. Now, a bull puts his head down, and he can't see you. A buffalo can see you all the way in. And uh, a wounded buffalo, I think, is the most dangerous thing. But I said to my assembled cast members in the Land Rover, as we looked at this herd, but at the same time, you can scare them. I opened the door, I took my hat, went whoa, like that, and they all vanished. <laughs> um, if I had to choose how to die, however, I think I would like to go back with a rifle and shoot one more buffalo, or try to shoot one more buffalo. And I got an idea that might, I might not come out of it, but it's a good way to die. On your feet. <laughs> yes. Well, sir, on that note, it has been an absolute honor to have you on the show. Uh, I, I, I've loved it, just very candidly. I've loved the conversation. Thank you so much. You really have done me an honor. More, you know, probably for, as a favor to this gentleman here, but uh, I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you for your patience, all of you. I mean, it must be the most long and boring session you've ever had. And nope. I apologize. I don't mind. No, it wasn't long at all. <laughs> you want more? You want blood? 